Yes, yes, I'm here. Here I am. I'm here. Hello. She might have done it naked. I mean, you don't know. As an Irish radical, I'm fully capable of answering a phone. I should have done more research. That is the primary function that we serve. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that will love you till the end of its days. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are married. No thanks to Evelyn Napier. We have 10 new countries this week for a total of 60 nations dancing to the Up Yours Downstairs groove. You mean the Downton Abbey gyro tune? I mean the Downton Abbey gyro tune. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Yes, we do. Our new countries are Poland, Indonesia, Oman, Algeria, Thailand, Jordan, Bermuda, Kuwait, Czech Republic, and Malaysia. It's like the Olympics in here. (laughs) It is. Very exciting. Gold medals to all the cousins. (laughs) And uh, we'd also like to announce our cousin of the week, Cousin Amanda, who was one of the first cousins to really start using the Facebook fan page. She's always a great source of Downton links and info, and uh, just a great person to chat with via email and Facebook comments. So well done, Cousin Amanda, and congratulations. Very well done. We do have a few telegrams from our cousins, but those are going to have to wait until the next episode, because this is the Series 1 finale, which Mm -hmm. is very long by itself, but we also have a guest with us. That's right. We're very excited. He is the blogmaster at Rigged Up, and he is our very good friend. Please welcome Sam Roth. Hello, Kelly. Hello, Tom. Thank you for having me. Hello, Sam. You're (laughs) welcome for having you. (laughs) (laughs) It's really good to be here. I'm really excited to discuss... The finer points of the <laughs> finest offerings of BBC and PBS. Yes, Laura Linney. Absolutely. Well, you should be. Laura Linney, without whose benevolent smugness, none of us would be here. <laughs> she looks like she farted, but nobody knows about it in that, in that <laughs> intro. I'm Laura Linney. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, you all think it was that grip. <laughs> <laughs> it was me. I ate chili today. <laughs> Okay, Meanwhile, go ahead, girl. The, the crew's like, we, we really know it was you. <laughs> That's why they do those stupid camera angles. They're all, like, fainting. That's why it's neck up, yeah. <laughs> no, so, Sam, so are you a fan of Downton Abbey? Do you like it? I am a fan of Downton Abbey. I'm only on season one, so I, I, I stopped here. Okay, I, I, I have not cool. gone any further. Well, then we'll have you do some predictions at the end for series two. Yes, I, I can't speak happen. benevolently, but, I mean, I already have my favorites, of course, O'Brien, and not just for her hairstyle, <laughs> <laughs> are you serious or are you joking? No, I'm serious about really just wanting to spend my time at Downton Abbey smoking cigarettes with her and Thomas in the alley out back. All I mean, right. Wow. That is a very unusual opinion. <laughs> yes. A very unusual and I, one. And I am entitled to it. You are most entitled <laughs> to it. No, you should check out on Twitter. I don't think we've mentioned this before, but on Twitter, there's all these accounts for things like O'Brien's bangs and <laughs> yeah. Lady Mary's eyebrows. I mean, there are, of course, like the usual, you know, the fictional characters, you know, of, of Lady Mary. There is right. a, my favorite one is actually Isis Grantham, which is at Dog of Downton, I oh. think is the name. Oh, yeah. my. Uh, yeah, we'll do like a follow Friday with them. But yeah. oh, my God, it's hilarious. Like they would all live tweet. The Series 2 episodes. So what kind of things does O'Brien's bangs tweet? Um, they tweet just things about sort of what O'Brien's doing. And, View from the top. Well, and they have different <laughs> opinions from O'Brien herself. Okay. Like, mm-hmm. there's an O'Brien account for O'Brien. But there's also an O'Brien's bangs. There's two, That's interesting. There's two warring Thomas the Evil Footman accounts. 
Well, I think it looks like BBC already has a lot of good ideas for spinoffs then. <laughs> the two Thomases. <laughs> <laughs> it turned out he had a brother all this time. One of them's the evil one. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay, well, great. I'm glad uh, that you're bringing your perspective and to I'm, our little podcast. I'm really glad to bring my perspective your anywhere strange, that we'll have it. Strange perspective. <laughs> Okay, well, I guess let's uh, let's go ahead and get down to the recapping. All right. We start out with a nice aerial shot of the, the main hall. Everyone is cleaning. <laughs> Everywhere cleaning. Mrs. Hughes is bustling through telling everyone to hurry because they will be back from the station any second. I wonder who they could be. Uh, Cthulhu? Is that a thing? I think so. But that's that's my theory. This is going <laughs> to show up here. And then uh, downstairs, uh, Mrs. Hughes asked Carson how London was. Uh, so we now realize that we've suddenly jumped forward about four months here, mm-hmm. or however long. And we missed uh, London. And we missed we did London. Miss Why, London. How can we miss Julian London? Fellows is always cutting out the good stuff. The party there's, stuff, really. No, there's a number of examples in this episode of really cool stuff he could have written, but was like, ah! You know what? This is too Jersey Shore for Down Abbey. <laughs> Sybil's peeing in the corner somewhere. <laughs> I'm sorry, Sybil. I don't mean to put that on you. She um, is the liberal. Uh, that's what I'm saying. Would anybody else pee in a corner? No. Mm. Uh, but you do have a point. Carson does say that it was dirty, noisy, and thoroughly enjoyable. Parts of which are also true of Jersey Shore. <laughs> <laughs> Not that last one. <laughs> yes. Uh, and Mrs. Hughes uh, is like, oh, you didn't need to come back early. I could have gotten everything ready, but he wanted to unpack the heavy luggage or whatever. There. Yes, we get it. You're both very good servants. <laughs> William rushes past, almost drops some, vase, some vases. Ooh, oh, la la. <laughs> and they uh, exposit how he uh, was apparently able to see his mother before she died. Mrs. Hughes says that, uh, you know, after all, you only get one mother. Unless you live in Northern California. <laughs> right. It's July 1914, we learn from the TV. <laughs> and uh, Lord Grantham and McGee arrive home, and they inform the servants that Lady Mary is staying in London for a few weeks uh, with her aunt Rosamond the much-vaunted food moocher. And they asked Mrs. Hughes how she spent her free time while they were gone, and she says she cleaned. (laughs) Uh, So Mrs. Hughes really knows how to have a good time, how to kick her feet up, let her hair down. She might have done it naked. I mean, we don't know. (laughs) That's true. It's possible. Lady's got to get hers. (laughs) And uh, they're asking what the local news is. There is no local news, however, because, as I mentioned before, it is July 1914, (laughs) and the Archduke Ferdinand of Austria has just been assassinated. Oh, also William's mother is dead. So, <laughs> but she wasn't assassinated. She wasn't assassinated. So she pretty much just both died. were sad. Yeah, but you know, one has global ramifications. Uh, unless William's mother is much more important than we've been led to realize. Well, she thought he was the secretary of like the home <laughs> department or something. So. Yeah, that's that's true. I think it was the Home Depot. <laughs> <laughs> McGee wants to talk to Mrs. Hughes about the garden party, which is apparently a thing that's happening. Mrs. Hughes says she wants to talk to her about a few things. Uh, McGee says, oh, that sounds like trouble. I'll take off my hat. Because we all know an Edwardian lady cannot handle trouble if she's wearing a hat. I thought it was because she had a flask in it. (laughs) She seemed really stressed out. Yeah. For a party. McGee's always stressed out. She's always like, oh. She has O'Brien. I'll take off my hat. (laughs) And then once she figures out how to say it. (laughs) 
she stops Sybil and is like, Sybil, you're a great success in London. Well done. And Edith's like, oh, you never say that to me. And I'm like, well, Edith, maybe you should try being a success sometime. (laughs) (laughs) It's always Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. sympathetic to Edith also? No, but that's the whole gag of the show. I mean, I would hope that nobody would be. (laughs) But I mean, really, that's her her point in the family. There's always one, and she's it. That's true. She's the Jan Brady. I mean, it's an archetype. It is is an important archetype, you know? Boy, if Sherwood Schwartz had any idea when he was starting, when he had an idea for a sitcom about a blended family. <laughs> Here's a story of a year love grandpa. <laughs> um, Mrs. Hughes tells Carson uh, that uh, she's going to need to tell McGee about Mrs. Patmore, who is, as we may recall, going blind. And she wants to know if there's a decision about Mr. Bates leaving, who, as you may recall, is a jackass. <laughs> <laughs> We cut to the park in London. Finally. Yes. Oh, don't get excited. Yeah. Nothing good is happening. Yeah, this is our 30 seconds of London. So it's the elusive Aunt Rosamond. Yes, who I'm very excited to yes. see. Uh, so this is the Dowager Countess's daughter, Lord Grantham's sister, mm-hmm. who now lives in a big old house in Belgrave Square. Uh, but she's walking in the park with Mary. Oh, does she have a pompadour kind of? Yeah, well, she a little she's... bit of one, I think. And in this scene, she has a big feather hat. Okay. She's very cosmopolitan and dramatic in her clothes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As she does live in London and doesn't need to wait months for uh, the latest <laughs> fashions to arrive. Yeah. But Rosamond is saying she's sorry that Mary hasn't had more invitations while she's been in London. And she wants to know why that is. Because Mary's been out for four seasons. She was presented to the king as a debutante four years ago, which puts her at about 20 years. She says that after four seasons, one is less... Uh, what did she say? More a survivor than a... Yeah. Either way, Aunt Rosie is calling Mary desperate. Yeah, she's saying, <laughs> right. she's saying like, hurry up already and find somebody. Yeah. Meanwhile, anyway, and then she's asking if there's anything that Mary hasn't told her, and Mary's being all vague and... Not as secretive as she could be. Yeah. And then Rosman wants to know if Mary is going to accept Matthew's proposal, saying that Cora, a.k.a. McGee, yes. cannot keep a secret uh, for more than a month. And Mary's all, you might be surprised. And I'm like, guess what? If I was trying to keep my death vagina a secret, <laughs> I would probably, yeah, yeah. making smarmy mar- like and remarks like, about it in London in the like, streets. I feel like she just wants everyone to find out sometimes, you know? She does. She's yeah. all like, oh, well, I have a She has that cynical look. Every time she, she delivers any line, uh-huh. she just looks away with this cynical expression. I think she knows she's done for. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, I haven't I haven't watched on from here, so. No, f- hey, you're making a very fair observation. Yeah. Rosman's being all bitchy about Mary and how she's been out for four seasons and I'm like, "Uh, question, who did you ever marry, Rosamond? What match did you ever- <laughs> Right, all she has <laughs> is this black umbrella. No, I think she <laughs> yeah. did marry someone at some point. I mean, it could be. I yeah. I think she's a widow. Is she? I don't I don't think it's made clear. Yeah. I don't know. She strikes me as being very widowy. Well, something gives her a high <laughs> Look, horse. You can't be that big of a bitch as a spinster, okay? I, you I, have to right. have done some years in the matrimonial trenches. Too soon? Call <laughs> <laughs> me in four years, guys. <laughs> uh, at that point, I'll be a survivor. <laughs> We're back down in the uh, servants' 
kitchen up in Downton. Uh, O'Brien receives a letter, looks at Bates, and uh, then asks Thomas if he fancies a smoke, which of course he does. This is my favorite part of Downton Abbey. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, William walking uh, past them refers to them as Guy Fox and his assistant. And Gwen wants to know which one is which, because O'Brien's ugly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it gives William an armband because she's nice to everybody, not just Bates. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, William tells Carson about it uh, and says that it's for his mother, asks if he can wear it. And Carson says yes, as long as they're not entertaining. <laughs> Which is like, never. I find the servants of Downton Abbey to always be entertaining. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they get that piano going. <laughs> yeah. Doing the bear, the grizzly. <laughs> <laughs> Do the grizzly. Anyway, Lord Grantham is wandering around his giant house and runs into Dr. Clarkson. What a surprise. Yeah, Lord Grantham is kind of upset because he thinks that his wife is ill. And Dr. Clarkson says she's not exactly ill. So Lord Grantham's on his way up to see his wife, but he tells the doctor to wait in the library, which I think is kind of presumptive. Although I guess they do kind of own the doctor. In the sense that they run his hospital. Yeah. But he's just like, uh, just go wait in the library because... Well, he does have, you know, about 50 people running around his house. It's, it's feasible that, you know... Yeah, that's true. <laughs> things are more pressing than his wife's, you know... <laughs> so, yeah, so he goes... Speaking of his wife's condition, he goes up to uh, her bedroom, which he sleeps in like a scandalous fool. <laughs> Turns out she's pregnant. She's pregnant! She hasn't been so pregnant. So that's how it happens. Yeah, in 18 years... Well, he's like, what were we doing differently? And she, like, smacks him, and it's like, shut up. Go give the doctor some whiskey. <laughs> Which, I have to say, I really hope that with Obamacare, we switch over to a whiskey compensation plan uh, for all medical care. Or at least for Medicare. They could take some state Medicare units. I mean, yeah, whiskey. I mean, especially if you're working in Medicare, you need a stiff drink. Absolutely. After probably every patient. In your twilight. <laughs> I will say that this does actually indicate that we've been two years off all along. Because if she hasn't been pregnant in 18 years, that means Sybil, in her first season, is 18 and huh. not 16. Which brings it a little closer to the actress's age. So it still doesn't explain her tan, though. <laughs> <laughs> you true. know, I heard on, uh, on The View that they're not allowed to like go outside or anything. It looks like it on most of them, but Sybil, she I does she have this inexplicable tan. That happens, though, sometimes. Well, that's what happens when you get liberal ideas. Yeah, you start going outside in the sun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all those rallies she gets to go to. Yeah. yeah. Look out, Mitt Romney is mm. uh, more, uh, more liberal than anybody could have expected, <laughs> based on his uh, tan. <laughs> so O'Brien has apparently been scheming with another lady's maid. So you <gasps> know how these ladies' maids are when they get together. Yeah. Uh, what did she mean by that? What do you mean? She was hinting at, you know, that a lady's made words, that, that's, that means something, you know. Oh, O'Brien just has this, like, really inflated opinion of ladies' maids, because mm-hmm. apart from being the head housekeeper, being a lady's maid means you're, like, at the top of the heap, especially if for the lady's maid to the lady of the house. Right. I'm not clear on whether Mrs. Hughes is a lady's maid or was trained as one. Because she said in an earlier episode that she came to Downton as the head housemate, and then, you know, she advanced to being head housekeeper. 
the housekeeper. Right. It's very complicated. So, so O'Brien's position really does mean something to her. I mean, and no, you know, it's very important. Her and she takes she's a lot not of just cutthroat. She really, she really, you know. <laughs> you just keep telling yourself that. I'm just trying to defend her. Hey, knock yourself. Somebody's got to. I'm like Ann Coulter going on MSNBC <laughs> trying to defend O'Brien here <laughs> with with Rachel Maddow. <laughs> Rachel Maddow was Team Bates. <laughs> <laughs> so we cut back to Lord Grantham in the library with Dr. Clarkson. And his whiskey. And his whiskey. I guess we know how uh, Dr. Clarkson's going to die. Uh, and Lord Grantham Love's announces... <laughs> Lord Grantham announces that McGee's pregnancy is biblical. Uh, although she can't be that old. Meaning I mean, that he wasn't the father? <laughs> Thing. Meaning that it's like Abraham and Sarah. Uh, although they had a kid when they were like 98 and 100 or something like that. So that's really not accurate. Lord, read your Bible. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's in that big library next to, <laughs> next to all that Ruskin <laughs> that Branson keeps borrowing. So uh, the doctor's like, uh, by the way, it's not biblical. You are aware that women go through sort of a change. And Lord Gantham's all like, I know quite enough about that. And I'm like, Clearly you don't know. Uh, right. Because he's trying to explain it to you because you're all like, how could this happen? And uh, he is not interested in hearing about his wife's sudden surge of fertility. Yeah, and his response to, to uh, you know any talk of her vagina is, oh, please. Uh-huh. Oh, please, he says. And I'm like, you've been in there. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, like, please. As far as we know, you're the only man who's seen it. So, like, maybe you should stop Be me. a little more excited. Yeah. About I'm, the baby and the vagina. Yeah. And just, you know, let the doctor prove that he went to medical school. Anyway, uh, so he prevents the doctor from saying anything more about the reproductive system. And Mrs. Hughes comes in just as the doctor is leaving uh, to inform Lord Grantham that a decision really has to be made about Mrs. Patmore. Yes. To which he replies, hmm. <laughs> yeah. Also, the, the one thing that he does uh, ask the doctor about that doesn't horrify him is he, he, he does, and there's no way of knowing whether it's a, meaning boy or a girl, and Dr. Clarkson says no. I was, I really wanted him to say some sort of, like, ridiculous old wives tale. Yeah. I really wanted him to be like, well, you, of course, you could throw her in the river and see if she floats, but she's American, so I'm not sure if <laughs> Wow, I haven't heard of that one. I've heard of the like the, the, the spoon or something. Like you tie a spoon to a string and I should have done more research. <laughs> <laughs> so Thomas and O'Brien are smugly standing before Carson, giving him the letter they have received from this mythical other lady's maid, and talking about I just want to say that I think that both Thomas and O'Brien would do way better for themselves if they would go to Carson with their crazy schemes separately. <laughs> to constantly be going together. You know, they're just They're dragging. so transparent. No, exactly. Yeah. They, look, you may love O'Brien, but she's not a very good schemer. No, she's not. And Thomas is a terrible schemer. I don't understand why O'Brien lets herself get dragged. That's the one thing I will say. Mm-hmm. Although there's not a whole lot defensible about O'Brien in this particular episode, but it's like you could be doing so much better if you would just cut the dead. But weight. you know she's she's so she's so transparent all the time in that she's never sweet to anybody. Not <laughs> yeah. e- not even when she's sucking up. When she's sucking up, she's still practically spitting. Yeah, that's you true. Know? Well, and, and then in this scene, Thomas is like, "Do you really want a man like that serving in Downton?" 
I'm like, really, Thomas? You're really arguing for this standard for Downton employees? Because it's a the standard... standard that you know you cannot possibly meet. And that Carson knows. He knows you're a terrible person. No, it's like, why are they still beating this drum after all this time? Like, look, we all hate Bates, okay? We can all agree <laughs> yeah. that he's too noble and he's annoying. But, like, he's not hurting anybody. Yeah. I don't think he would. I think if you pulled a knife on him, he'd be like, oh... It's my fault. I don't. You don't have all the facts. It is his fault. <laughs> Bates. Uh, Bates has victim syndrome. He just can't. Mm-hmm. He can't get Play over it. Play the victim. Mm. He's no, but he's both the victim and the perpetrator all the time. I think now you're getting into victim blaming. <laughs> all right, moving on. <laughs> Jezebel.com. <laughs> Sorry, I just can't help myself. Mary is in Aunt Rosman's house, the famous house in Belgrave Square, when who should drop by but Evelyn Napier. <gasps> Old caca Evelyn Napier. That's right, who we, we all thought we'd seen the last of. He's, first of all, apparently called off his engagement that he had apparently had. It has no effect on anything, he just sort of throws that out there. Well, we had heard in an earlier episode that he was planning to marry somebody. Mm. And Mary says that everything seemed very fixed at Sybil's ball. Yeah. So this is something that's come up. They've seen each other since the fateful uh, visit of Mr. Pamuk. Fair enough. But he is, of course, there to discuss the fateful visit of Mr. Pamuk. Mm -hmm. Uh, Specifically that he has been hearing the gossip that's been all over town. He wants to tell her, A, that he is not the source of it. And B, that he has found out what the source of it was. And he wasn't sure whether to tell her, and he's all, like, hemming and hawing and all that sort of thing. Mary points out that the suspense is killing her. <laughs> and I, She's very bored-sounding, though, when she said I wasn't sure if she was being sarcastic about that. What, what do you think? Well, I think Mary has a real sincerity issue. Just period. I think, well, you must never listen to anything she says. A great so, quote. A great Mary yeah. quote. So, I mean, what are we supposed to think? Of course she meant it. I'm, <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Mary. Yeah, Tom Hart's Mary. You're yes. never going to get... He loves Mary as much as you love O'Brien. Yeah, absolutely. I love only Mrs. Patmore. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But in any case, it is, of course, as we already knew, Lady Edith was the source of the gossip. Uh, Mary is, you know, she didn't know that, but when she hears it, she's not that surprised. Mm -hmm. It's always Marsha, Marsha, (laughs) Marsha. We get back to downstairs at Downton Abbey, and Mrs. Hughes and Carson are talking about how difficult a new male heir would make life for Matthew Crawley. Carson cannot believe that Mary would break off the engagement if his prospects change. And uh, Mrs. Hughes hilariously tells Carson that Lady Mary Crawley does not deserve him. Yes. Uh, because Mrs. Hughes has always, you know, kind of thought much less of Mary than Mr. Carson has. Uh, in his eyes, she can do no wrong. Yeah. Despite the fact that in our eyes, she's done quite a lot of wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> Just I, objectively, things that are bad. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, I love Mary. I don't think that she deserves Carson. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think she deserves for me to love her as much as I do. I, she's just great. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> she just accepts it and mm-hmm. looks off cynically. <laughs> we get the uh, Dowager Countess. We actually get our first exterior shot of the Dowager Cottage. Yes. Which is very nice, as yes. you'd expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and inside, the Dowager Countess and McGee are chatting about whether Mary has been in touch with Matthew regarding the uh, engagement proposal thingy. 
that went from down months ago. Yes, months ago. Oh, so it has been months. I, I wasn't thinking about you. Know, time no, moves been, so quickly. Like, apparently, yeah. she's not. She's been in London for months and has not been writing to him at yeah. all. Which. I don't know what the etiquette of the time was, but if you... That like, sounds about right. So that's you, warmly close then, right? <laughs> like, if you're relatively sure that you love someone, as Mary was, wouldn't you at least, like, send him a postcard? Like, wish you were at this debutante ball, but you're not part of the land of nobility yet, so you're not invited. <laughs> anyway, she is uh, also saying that Cora has to take care of herself now that she's pregnant. And McGee um, says that O'Brien has her wrapped in silk and feathers, uh, which actually sounds kind of uncomfortable because feathers have those pokey things. On them. Right, right. It sounds more costumey. I know. What's really going and on weird. there? They yeah. haven't invented Tempur-Pedic yet. <laughs> but the Dowager Countess uh, is very envious of McGee's excellent relationship with her maid. McGee says that uh, O'Brien is very fond of her. And the Dowager Countess is concerned that her maid, Simmons, who I don't think we ever see, has been very fidgety, and she's worried that she's going to leave her. She's been rushing out to meet the postman, and the Dowager Countess feels that something must be up. And McGee asks, oh, is there anything worse than losing one's maid? And uh, Laura Linney says yes. Laura Linney, <laughs> uh, previously on a uh, Downton for Dummies segment, said yes. There are much worse things. <laughs> well, thank wonder, you, Laura. I'm glad I missed those segments. Oh God, they're so terrible. Yeah, I just think she, I, I think Laura Linney just she must need the street cred. You know? I think she needs the money. Is that what it is? Are they paying her? I mean, I would think so. She's think Laura she's Linney. Doesn't free. she have an Oscar? Does she? she I was think nominated. so. I don't. I, I don't know. I can't. Maybe remember. this is what this is about. I can't remember if she won for "You Can Count on Me" or not. Wow. Which is historically, I think, the last time I've actually liked Laura Linney. <laughs> anyway, yeah, uh, cousins, if you know, because we apparently don't have the internet, <laughs> yeah. uh, hit us up. Let us know. <laughs> Did Laura Linney win an Oscar? Matthew and Lord Grantham are strolling along their country estate, or rather, Lord Grantham's country estate. Yeah, Lord Grantham and the fetus's estate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes talking about the entail and uh, how Lord Grantham would love to help Matthew out, but uh, that's that's entails for you. He can't do the, do a thing for him. I want to start a band called Lord Grantham and the Fetuses. Fetai. Fetai? The Fetai? Fetuses. Like fetuses. fetuses. Yeah. Grammar doesn't matter in rock and roll, man. <laughs> syllables do. Cool. You want to play bass? All right. Tom on drums? Boom. All right. I'm lead triangle and vocals. Check it. Let's do this. <laughs> It's going to be a very unique sound. Mm-hmm. Lord Grantham also asks about Matthew's cook. Surprising Matthew. <laughs> he just Matthew looks like he like told him that aliens were landing. <laughs> He's like, Mrs. Bird. And then he just like looks off into space like he has Tourette's. Like it's really weird. I found that to be a strangely edited scene, but it wasn't uh hey. Maybe they had bigger plans for the role of Mrs. Bird and <laughs> They just never got there. Matthew's been carrying on an affair with her for years. <laughs> Mrs. Bird, the Turkish spy I keep in my employ. <laughs> yes, that one. Uh, we're back below stairs, and everybody is uh, getting ready for luncheon, uh, which I always say with a McGee accent now. <laughs> but Thomas comes in and for no reason starts being a total dick about his dead mother. To William. And, reeking uh, of cigarettes. Yeah, reeking <laughs> yeah. of cigarettes and probably stolen wine. And uh, William, you know, starts like he's going to push him or punch him or something. And Mrs. Hughes is just like, William, go up to the servery. And we're like, 
All right, Mrs. Hughes, we get that you have to keep the peace, but that was a dick move. Come yeah. on. Also, what's a servery? You yeah. just made that up. I think it's, I think it's like a walk-in freezer. <laughs> She's like, there's no such thing as a servery. William will be wandering around all afternoon. <laughs> and uh, then Mrs. Patmore burns her hand and fucks up the luncheon. Again. Again. I'm She's... really pulling for her, too, but come I know. on, lady. Oh, it breaks my heart, though. And poor little Daisy. She always just smacks Daisy yeah. in the face anytime anything happens. <laughs> she does. Yeah. And and uh, so Mrs. Hughes, though, insists that Mrs. Patmore sit down and she and Daisy will finish the luncheon. Yeah. Nameless mystery servant cowers in the background, knowing not to interfere. Ooh, well, there are extras? Well, uh-huh. I didn't oh, yeah. catch the there's, extras. Yeah, there's about three nameless maidservants. And presumably a hall boy. They make reference to a hall boy. Yeah. And there's got to be... Is Daisy the scullery maid or is she the kitchen maid? She was, like... I'm pretty sure she was specifically called a scullery maid at one point. Okay, but, I don't, because she lays all the fires. Right. And I believe that's the scullery maid's purview, but... She looks like she spends a lot of time in a chimney I mean, shoot. <laughs> she looks like a scullery, mm-hmm, right? Like, right. Like, think of a skull. Like, she looks ring. like Gollum, kind of. <laughs> she does. She's like adorable, <laughs> Little bug-eyed, but Gollum. cute, you know? You're, yeah, she's still, still endearing, yeah. but terrifying and terrified. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She's just all the colors of My the rainbow. My precious. <laughs> How would she... Oh, Mrs. Patmore, where's me precious? I don't know. It's so terrible. I gave it to the fairies. <laughs> Our listeners in Great Britain are dropping like flies. They're like, they're like, bloody Americans can't even do our lower class accents, right? <laughs> You're but correct, our, we can't. But our listeners know Mon are loving it. <laughs> Uh, Matthew's talking to mom about, you know, how he's screwed. Um, and if the baby is a boy, he wants to uh, just move back to Manchester. They have a great gay scene there, from mm-hmm. what I have heard uh, from uh, <laughs> Spaced. Right. It's, so If it, I said that before, I apologized, but I think it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if Matthew's looking for that, then he, he definitely should move back to Manchester. Mom asks, what does Mary say? Uh, and Matthew says, nothing yet. And I reflect on the fact that uh, a good alternate title for Downton Abbey would have been, What Does Mary Say? <laughs> and uh, then Matthew calls in Mrs. Bird to let her know that Lord Grantham is asking a favor from her. Mrs. Bird is a real old battle-axe-looking <laughs> lady, and she's like, I'm surprised Lord Grantham's even heard of me! And they're all like, ha 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 ha. You plucky lower-class woman, you. <laughs> <laughs> Then we are uh, with Carson finding Bates in Lord Grantham's dressing room and informing him that Miss O'Brien befriended a lady's maid in London uh, and she worked in the household of a colonel from his old regiment in the army. And he hands him the incriminating letter, asks if anything in the account is true. and Or, or he asks if it's false. Yeah, he asks, tell, he's like, tell me that this account is false, at least in part. And, and Bates replies, what does it matter? I suck anyway." Yeah, basically. <laughs> he just... All I have written here is OMG Bates. Seriously, because like even if the the things are true, like mitigating circumstances, dude. These people have already made so many allowances for you. It's clear Lord Grantham's got a boner for you. Yeah, like you could easily get out of this. You haven't done anything wrong <laughs> the entire time you've been there. Yeah, I, I I like that. A Carson does not even bother mentioning Thomas as being involved mm-hmm. because you know. Honest. No, what part of your brain, O'Brien, is like, oh, I need some extra credibility on this. <laughs> I'm going to bring Thomas. Yeah. And then uh, Carson also says, I 
I don't like to play the part of Pontius Pilate. I'm like, isn't that pretty much what Pontius Pilate said? Yeah. Another Bible reference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They're all over this. Uh... I'm learning. I'm learning all about this Bible. <laughs> this Bible I've heard so much mm-hmm. about. It's great. Do you have a friend in Jesus, miss? <laughs> <laughs> but you'll always have a friend in O'Brien. If you ever need a smoke out back. O'Brien's the devil. You can read all about that guy in the Bible. <laughs> He'd probably like to smoke, too. <laughs> Back in London, uh, Rosamond is talking to Mary again. Rosamond, by the way, wearing purple, as all members of the Crawley family do all the time. It's just no, me. it's mainly Cousin Violet, who I think does it to match her name. And Maggie Smith's recurring hat. Yeah, her purple hat. And then um, we see uh, Sybil in purple. And I don't think we've ever seen McGee or the other girls in purple. Well, but what about that thing that she McGee has a wears? wrap, a cardigan that, yeah, wrap that thing. Wrap thing that she wears? Mm, all right. What fine. do we call that? Anyway. A duster. <laughs> that, was, that was my that was my attempt to note. Well, purple something was about the color fashion. of royalty, which doesn't really explain why they're wearing it. <laughs> right. In any case, uh, whatever she's wearing, uh, she is encouraging Mary to be a bigger bitch than she would even naturally be by putting off Matthew until the baby is born to find out whether he's going to be rich or poor. Mm-hmm. And she says that, that of the three of them, only Sybil would be happy in a cottage, referring to the fact that Matthew, you know, will probably stay in, in Crawley House, which Lord Grantham said. Right. I don't know if maybe he's communicated that in a letter, that like, oh, you know, if this doesn't happen, I'll give him Crawley House to mm-hmm. stay in. But, like... I mean, you know, I think it's a fair assessment of Sybil. And hey, I mean, if they can just keep giving her concussions for the rest of her <laughs> life, maybe she could marry Matthew and that would be fine. Well, now every time she has an opinion, they're just going to think that she's, she had a bump on her head. <laughs> you know, that's what they'll start saying about her. <laughs> um, and, you know, and Mary's saying she might want to accept Matthew regardless because he, you know, he's very clever. And she thinks he might even be Lord Chancellor someday. And Rosamond's like, yeah, well, maybe he won't. Do you really want to be the wife of a, of a country lawyer for your whole life? And Mary doesn't quite know what to think about that. Mm-hmm. Carson is talking to Lord Grantham and wanting to know why they would ever need a telephone at Downton. Uh, Lord Grantham Prank says... Prank calls. <laughs> is your footman running? <laughs> you better go catch him. <laughs> no, seriously, he's probably stealing something. <laughs> Lord Grantham says that the girls had gotten used to it because, of course, Rosamond had a telephone in Belgrave Square. Well, I think they have their own house in London. That's right. They had Grantham House. Yes. was specifically stated. But in any case, they got used to it in London. And, of course, after this Archduke that got assassinated, I don't know if you guys heard, mm. there was an Archduke assassinated. And there's Didn't gonna... he have, like, a song called something like... Duke, 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 yeah. Duke of Earl. Earl, Earl. <laughs> no, I see you Wrong take Duke. me out I, by I, Franz Ferdinand, but I think <laughs> <laughs> He wasn't the Duke of Earl, no. <laughs> Is anyone the Duke of Earl? Because a Duke and an Earl are the same thing. No, they're not. I didn't write the song. We, we had a whole segment on how Dukes are better than Earls. What am I saying? Yeah. <laughs> Get it together. <laughs> They also discuss the uh, famous letter from the famous lady's maid. Lord Grantham finds it suspicious, as does Carson, because Thomas and Brian are assholes, mm-hmm. and therefore... Yeah, and they say that apparently Bates was convicted of stealing regimental silver? Right. Presumably from the army, since this is information coming from this colonel's house. Yeah. I'm just like, that's an interesting thing to steal. 
Yeah. Regimental I mean, silver. It seems like it would be hard to, like... To hawk that. Yeah. Yeah. But like, oh, doesn't this belong to the regiment? <laughs> it says regiment. Somebody's name is on it. 507 right here. It's yeah. Just, it's got everybody's names on it. Little yeah. dog tags on everyone. <laughs> yeah, they say, they say they would find it more plausible for him to be an assassin. I don't find that plausible, what with his leg... But, uh, well, they've gotten they're... that injury somehow yeah. in the throes of assassination. <laughs> Mary has come back to Downton. Yes. She is in the uh, the parlor, I think, versus the drawing room, uh, discussing her prospects with yes. everyone. There's a summit been called of the Crawley women. And uh, Granny insists that she should accept Matthew, regardless of this baby situation. And then if he loses everything and she doesn't want to marry him anymore, then she can, you know, dump him. Which I think is a great solution. <laughs> right. I mean, it seems like, you know, the potential for hurt feelings is at its minimum here. Right. And then Mary says, oh, I couldn't do that to Matthew. That's not how we are together. I'm like, oh, yes, yes. Your relationship has been defined by consistency you, up till now. You called him a sea monster. <laughs> like, you called him a sea monster. I don't think this is that much worse. That's, that's kind of exactly how you've been together from the beginning. Yeah. Granny very sensibly says that if you say yes to him now, when he might have nothing, then he will love you for the rest of his days. And Sybil says that Granny is a romantic. Which is very cute. And, but no, the Dowager Countess just shakes it off. She's like, I've been called many things, but never that. And, uh, I love that that's offensive. It's fantastic. That is, that is offensive. Well, she's pragmatic. She goes, I think she goes out of her way to be practical. Mm-hmm. But she, I think, you know, she understands that unlike McGee, being with somebody for 40 years is a really long time to be with somebody. Absolutely. So uh, Edith is being a total biatch to Mary. She's saying, you know, Mary can't be naive and expect, you know... That if she does turn Matthew down, that she will get many more offers. Wink, wink. Thankfully, no one's listening to her. Well, yeah. And uh, Mary then exits stage right by uh, saying she's going to go help Emma (laughs) unpack. And then Sybil goes with her, and then McGee kicks Edith out, as she always does. She's like, get out of here! What's your name again? She says, Edith, why don't you go too? And Edith is thinking, boy, if I had a pound for every time I'd heard that. (laughs) I could buy Crowley House. Uh, But the Dowager Countess throws her a bone and says, Sir Anthony Overbite was asking about her at uh, somebody's party. Maybe Ward or something? Yeah. In London. Uh, and then she blushes and the audience is terrified. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it turns out Simmons, the Dowager Countess's maid, is in fact leaving. Oh. Yeah. Maggie Smith is devastated. You never even got to meet her. Oh, no. I'll miss her, though. Well, she's running off to get married. And you know what Maggie Smith thinks of that? She is not a fan. <laughs> but uh, McGee graciously offers to put an ad in The Lady, which is a magazine. Yes. It's actually, and I, I was looking into this, not only is that a real magazine of the time, it is a real magazine to this day. Hmm. It has been in continuous publication since 1885. That's wow. Really yeah, it is. And it is still a, a resource for classifieds for domestic service. For, for, I was on lady.co.uk just today <laughs> uh, just to see what they've got. And I found, just to give you one example, Housekeeper Wanted... To look after two dogs and clean property in Wilts SN6, provided with stylish guest house, mm-hmm. free rent and bills, able to have part-time job, young, responsible, with positive good manners. 
Car a must, salary negotiable. I'm moving to Wilts. Yeah, that absolutely. That sounds so much I'm... better than everything that's going on in my life right now. No offense. <laughs> Either of you, but damn. So see you later, Kelly. Yeah, I'm going to go. Well, I'll finish up the podcast. Oh, thank you. It's just rude. Well, imagine if that prospect would have been offered to anybody at Downton Abbey. I mean, it's just not fair. Mm. <laughs> they have it so they well, can have a part-time job. Yeah. yeah, although none of them have a car, though, and car is a must. Branson. Branson could do it. That's true. Although mm-hmm. it's not his car. And... I'm not sure that he has good manners. <laughs> <laughs> no socialists. <laughs> Capitalists only. <laughs> so, and, and, and was Matthew reading this magazine anyways? The lady is is that is that why he uh, he he's he presents it? <laughs> <laughs> and that I'm just wondering what he's doing with it. Matthew didn't have it. It was uh, McGee was going to place an ad in. The lady for oh McGee okay yeah, yeah not Matthew yeah. I see and uh, that brings us to our next segment so I'm going to turn it over now to our very own dapper debutante Kelly for a segment that we call fashion backwards thank you Tom uh, today we are going to be discussing the London season coming out into Edwardian high society and also the rules for extramarital affairs in Ooh. Edwardian England so. The period when a girl joined society was called coming out, uh, just as it is here in America, Mm -hmm. and it usually took place when she reached the age of 18. So you are correct. We have been uh, aging all these girls down from where they actually are. And Sybil is on cue then. Sybil's on cue. She's 18. And so if Mary's been out then for four seasons... Uh, Mary's 22, so she's not uh, not quite the blushing young rose. She's almost she as old as Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> Four seasons? She's getting up there. And less attractive. Um, and actually, most aristocratic families did not give their girls much preparation for entering society. Uh, the majority of them brought their kids up in the country, and they developed a love of outdoor life. And they received little education other than learning to play the piano and dance. Uh, plus a little bit of French and German. And we hear Sybil make reference to that when she says she wants to go to university because nobody ever learns anything from a governess except how to speak French. Mm. So she has training in table manners, and basically that is all that you needed to come out into society. Table manners, a little piano, a little French and German. I'm guessing German's going to be less important. I live in Um, Oakland, (laughs) and I'm just going to (laughs) say... When, when I when, when I or any eighteen year old girl leaves the house, it takes a little bit more than manners, <laughs> manners French and German. Uh, so the time for these girls to come out was the London summer season, which we've heard so much about. It lasted from May to August. So the family has actually come back a bit early from the season, mm-hmm. um, which may be why Mary has stayed on to try and wring the last gasping vestiges <laughs> of her uh, virginity out of things. Uh, but as early as February, they would have received invitations to be presented to the king and queen at the first court. And we heard uh, Maggie Smith talk about that in the previous episode with Sybil. And in any one season, approximately 100 girls would be received at court, with 30 or 40 debutantes being presented at any one time. A girl also kind of signaled that she was ready for marriage and society by projecting her body image. She would uh, use a series of signs and symbols, the first of which is putting up her hair. And we've seen Sybil kind of in between. Oh, yeah. She'll wear her hair sort of like in a ponytail. Sometimes she has it pinned all the way up. A loose bun sort yeah, of? Yeah, well, and I think you 
you'll notice in this episode, she's got it pinned all the way up in every scene. Uh, yeah. And um, basically, the idea in uh, Edwardian England is, you know, having your hair down is a symbol of virginity, and, and it's a symbol of virginity and a symbol of, pros- of promiscuity. So basically, when you're a kid... It's just, look, it's like a Catholic schoolgirl uniform. When you're a kid, everybody's like, oh, how cute. And then when you, you know, get past the age of 18, everybody's like, what a hoe. <laughs> look at that slut. Aww. Anyway, so, you know, these, you know, it was, it was kind of like, you know, this rite of passage thing. Since they didn't have, like, training bras, uh, they had training <laughs> hair. The debutantes would come out, but they were expected to be behaving like the older matrons that they were now sort of matriculating with. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite the fact that they did not manage their own household and were, in oftentimes they had just completed their education. Uh, and then while the, the season was going on, they would go to balls and dance every night, and then they would spend the day shopping for clothes, going to garden parties, and calling on friends. And they basically just did everything they could to enjoy themselves, because within months, many of them would get married and find themselves playing hostess. And, uh, you know, they were, they were relatively frivolous at this time. I mean, I'm sure that there were many who were better educated than others. Mm-hmm. But in general, they were, not, uh, they were not encouraged to be particularly intellectual. Mm-hmm. Which brings us to uh, a different subject. And I read that taking lovers was pretty common in Edwardian times. And I didn't have any real confirmation. And, and I, most of the websites that I've been to have been pretty mum on the subject. We actually, instead of our usual Edwardian promenade today, we are uh, getting this information from fashionera.com. Uh, and then this article is by Pauline Weston Thomas. So thank that's you, who, Pauline. Yeah, Pauline is. Thank you for answering all of the questions that I had <laughs> yeah. uh, still in this season about society. So basically, according to Pauline, love affairs were perhaps the only real excitement the rich experienced, fettered as they were with time-consuming rigid formality and elaborate code of etiquette. Once you were married, it was considered pretty common to take a lover uh, who, you know, was either also married or, you know, I imagine for women it was, it was a, bit, uh, a bit easier to hook up with an unmarried guy mm-hmm. than it would be for a man to hook up with an unmarried girl, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, but basically husbands and wives basically steal themselves to ignore extramarital affairs as long as outward appearance of their own situation looked happy and uh, the wife, you know, had, had popped out some kids. Mm. So Lady Grantham and Lord Grantham, you know, they would have been at prime, you know, affair having time right. many years ago. We're not saying they did. No, it doesn't look, I mean, it looks like they are very faithful They're to sleeping each other. together. Well, yeah. and I, you know, it, well, it's... And I also wonder if it's again to what extent because we've all we've all sort of speculated that they're a bit more conservative up there in Yorkshire than perhaps other families might be. Well, the person who started this uh, was Edward, uh, the Prince of Wales. He started to have affairs with noble women, actresses, uh, and basically he had he set out the rules. He was the source of the rules for an extramarital affair if you were going to have one. So that's interesting. So, so then because of that, do you think uh, you know, there, were, there were less people who would slum it and maybe you know, sleep with the servant girl? That Would they reserve their affairs for high society people? I mean, I think they would probably do that anyway. I would, I would assume that a person who was into slumming it had their own sort of weird power dynamic that they were interested in exploring. 
So those people were going to do that anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And That's those, more of a fetish than anything. Yeah, and those people yeah. wouldn't be received in society in the same way as somebody who conducted their affairs gracefully. Uh, however, if you did break the rules, there is a practice called cutting, uh, which is defined as social death. Mm-hmm. People's names would quickly be removed from guest lists so that people who uh, were deviant in their behavior uh, or were indiscreet in public, they had no social standing in society. And this is basically what's happened to Mary, is that her name has been stricken from all the books. She's not getting invited to these parties? Absolutely not. And it's not clear to me. I mean, clearly, Sybil did well, is what we're hearing. So Mm. it seems that whatever Mary's issues are they haven't reflected too badly on civil well and i i get the feeling that it's not because it's sort of rumors and because there's competing stories out there Mm -hmm. that it's sort of an intermediate stage with her that you know she's getting very few invitations but she's not like completely completely ostracized yeah well and and unmarried women were not considered on the menu as it were for these extramarital affairs. Mm. The women had to be married. But it says here that if they offended the rules, you know, they could have their chances of a good marriage ruined and, you know, they could be, you know, removed from the guest lists. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. I think it's more serious than they even let on in the show. Yeah. Because of something that Evelyn Napier says is that they know that the story is coming from Edith and that is why they accept it. Mm. So I don't think people are as unsure about it as the family is pretending. Hmm. The family has a lot wrapped up in Mary not having behaved this way. Right. They have a lot at stake of their own social standing and the future of the family. Mm-hmm. Whereas nobody else has that pressure. Yeah. You know? So I, I think it's much worse for Mary. And, you know, uh, later in the episode, Cousin Violet refers to Matthew's offer as the only decent offer she's likely to get. Yeah. Uh, if you recall, the plan is to take her to Italy at the end of August, which oh, the is coming up. girl in Italian. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's not good. The, the standards for young women were to be innocent and virginal. Uh, if she was engaged, she would not be allowed to drive home alone in a carriage with her fiancé. Mm-hmm. So, you know, chaperoning was very much in effect. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is, this is how uh, Mary kind of flubbed it for herself because if she had been able to sort of... And, you know, granted... I'm not blaming Mary here because I think we've all agreed that there was definitely more than a whiff of date rape mm-hmm. going on right. with what happened to her. But I mean, you know, these are the consequences of that situation. She wasn't kidding when she said, you know, do you know what would happen if anyone knew we'd even had this conversation? Yeah, it could have been the same just for them being in a room alone together. No, exactly. You know, yeah. Riding I mean, in carriages the, with boys. The assumption and in, in the, <laughs> the basic understanding of human sexuality was that if any man is alone in a room with a girl, sex has happened. Not even a question. Yeah. And given how much guys seem to know and care about the female anatomy, uh, <laughs> I think maybe I understand why they think that. We need to get some Georgia O'Keeffe paintings. At least in Downton Abbey, something. Yes, I don't think she was around yet. <laughs> I can't be sure, but I believe we've just had intercourse. <laughs> hmm? What was that, dear? <laughs> <laughs> So that is Fashion Backward. Thank you once again to fashion-era.com. 
and Pauline Weston Thomas. Yay, we will uh, we'll be sure to tweet that website so that you can check it out. She's got a lot of great information on a variety of different eras. And also some good links to how to make yourself a costume from those eras. Oh, uh-huh. that's good for, I mean, the San Francisco Bay Area, Edwardian Ball. And, mm-hmm. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. The Dickens Fair. Beta Breakers. Whatever, you yeah, know what have you. absolutely. Just, anytime there's a time to have a costume on in the Bay Area, it's good to know where mm-hmm. to go. All right. Well, thank you, Pauline, and thank you, Kelly. You're welcome. All right, so back to the recap. Downstairs in the kitchen, the servants, well, the good servants are all discussing uh, possible baby gifts, as well as the news of, you know, the, the assassination and the how apparently they've caught Princip, uh, who is the assassin of Franz Ferdinand, and he was, him and all his gang were members of the Black Hand, apparently, which O'Brien does not like the sound of. That's racist. <laughs> is that racist to say that like that? Hmm. Let's go back. That's racist. Uh, Carson tells Daisy to send Mrs. Patmore up to the library with Anna. And <gasps> like, it's a big surprise. Yeah. Daisy looks frightened as usual. <laughs> yes, that is true. Daisy has her customary wide-eyed. And O'Brien says, and we thought the assassination of an archduke was a surprise. Like, Which, look, Mrs. Patmore's in their house. Yeah. I would lay Vegas odds at, like, ten to one. Yeah, and also, I would also like to point out that a month ago, I bet not a damn one of them could have named the Archduke of yeah. Austria-Hungary. Give me a break. So maybe <laughs> Thomas, he's got that newspaper. <laughs> well, and Carson. That's true. And Carson. Sybil, with her opinions. <laughs> <laughs> and that bump on her head. <laughs> This is the bump on my head. It makes me do crazy things. <laughs> Another spinoff of Downton Abbey, <laughs> perhaps. Sybil in the bump. <laughs> bump in charge of our days and our nights. Bump in charge of our wrongs and our... <laughs> so we're up in the library. This is the episode where I sing a lot of songs. <laughs> Uh, Mrs. Patmore walks into the library with Anna and immediately starts apologizing before she's even all the way in. She is British. <laughs> Stammering. Uh, because she thinks that she's about to be fired, mm-hmm. which is not unreasonable of her to think that. Lord Grantham attempts to interrupt her and explain that she's not being fired. Uh, she can't really stop interrupting. Anna finally is like, yeah, let him speak. And Lord Grantham's like, thank you, I have no idea how to talk to these people. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it occurred to me watching this scene that Mrs. Patmore probably basically never sees Lord Grantham. Or she may never have met him, because I think it's the wife's duty to hire the cook. Right. So it's, you know, quite flustering for her, clearly. But no, he is, he is not firing her, and he is in fact sending her to see an eye specialist at Moorfields in London. And she says, I'm afraid I'll have to sit down in your grace's presence. Which he says is all right, and it's just so... I cry every time. Like, from the point where Mrs. Patmore has to tell Carson that she's going blind, I'm just, like, sobbing every time the woman's on screen. And and we should give her credit. I mean, and it's not just through this arc, but she has been giving a great performance from the beginning because it seems it's such a sort of one-note character Mm -hmm. that she's just this... But she does manage to find all these levels, you know? And and more than just... All the time, and right. it is those little little nuanced character, those little nuanced character developments, and those in the characters that are usually just kind of stock and doing the same thing every episode that really mean something. Yeah, you know? right, right, exactly. That's why I'm waiting for O'Brien. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'll wait for you, O'Brien. I'll wait for you to the with, end of my with day. With a Marlboro light. <laughs> <laughs> and a flattening iron. <laughs> someday. Someday behind the Abbey. Matthew is talking to Mary, and he wants to know why she is delaying her answer, because she told him that she would give him her answer the day she got back from London. Which I'm sure seemed like a much longer time ago. When it wasn't the day she got back from London. <laughs> Mary's right. like, I don't even remember London. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he correctly determines that she's concerned about his position in society. Mary just sucks at this. She just sucks at this so bad. She tells him, she tells him Granny's plan that she should say yes and then throw him over after the baby is born if it's a boy. And I'm like, guess what doesn't work? If you tell him in advance. See, I, I, I expected him to appreciate her being candid, because that's Mary's thing. She, I'm Mary. I tell it like it is, and I don't go for rides with people I don't know. I don't understand know, why and, he's you know. listening to anything she says, frankly. I think he should just drag her down to the church and be <laughs> like, I don't care what you say. We're getting married now. That's uh, that's one way to go. Yeah. No, I mean, I kind Feminist. of Feminist. <laughs> <laughs> From Matthew. <laughs> he needs to get some self-respect. Yeah. No, I think that, uh, you know, I think Mary has more of a point in this episode than I think we're meant to think that she does. I mean, you know, it is, everybody seems to think that, oh, it should be just based on this relationship and that should be all that matters. Despite the fact that, you know, first of all, nobody's forming relationships on that basis in the society. Yeah, that's true. This is a gigantic thing that she's being asked to do to completely change her standard of living for somebody that, remember, how much time has she really spent with him in her life? You know, 12 hours, 24 hours total. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like they've been dating like we date nowadays and, you know, move in for a little while, really get to know the person. You've got to make the decision based on a few chaperoned encounters. They're lucky they've had a drink together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, to the, who you're going to spend the entire rest of your life with. I think that this is a lot more. Well, and as we heard, her. it's not like she has any skills to fall <laughs> right. back on here. I don't know. <laughs> she has great hats. <laughs> Even in that scene, actually, yeah, she had. Yeah, so everybody. She's not unique in her great hat having. That's, she just wears them well, well with that cynical expression. Yeah, she can't it looks make good them. under She's a not big be hat. A haberdasher. <laughs> <laughs> I wish she was. <laughs> Another spinoff. <laughs> Lord Grantham is in his dressing room questioning Bates about the theft of the regimental silver and the sentence he received for it of two years, uh, which Lord Grantham finds unusual. The penalty generally would have been steeper than two years. He wants the truth, but Bates can't handle the truth, so he refuses to act in his own defense yet again. Yeah. Uh, and I am I, so grateful to this scene because Lord Grantham just gives Bates the side eye that we're all giving him from home. Yeah. Because Bates is like, oh, but I confessed, you know. And Lord Grantham, like all of us, is thinking, well, that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. You would confess to shooting the Archduke if you thought it would take <laughs> Satan an inconvenience. <laughs> the devil went down to Downton. <laughs> the John Bates story. <laughs> This is the last time I'm going to say it. Another spinoff. <laughs> uh, look, this podcast has a lot of time to fill before <laughs> the new season starts. We can create as many spinoffs say, as we, we please. Do, we could do them as radio plays, you yeah. know? I've got a cookie sheet that we can use for thunder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please don't apologize for that because I've got at least one uh, spinoff lined up for later in this podcast. <gasps> Spoilers. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. It's a teaser. Keep listening. 
Uh, Anna tells Bates that she doesn't believe his story because she is not an idiot. Mm-hmm. And she's the nicest person ever. Right. And I wish he lived with me and was with, like, my best friend. Yeah. She's real nice, not mm-hmm. fake nice like Bates. Yeah. Yeah, because that's the thing about Bates. That's what rubs me the wrong way. He's so clearly not a nice person. Trying to masquerade as a nice yeah, person. Yeah, anybody can be yeah, nice. I, anybody I anybody know can that be nice. Game. I play it at every family function I go to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't have Preach. time. Yeah, I don't have time for this. And like, you know, I don't mind him like trying to like clean his act up and like be a better person. But like, there's a difference between being a better person and being nice to the point of the destruction of you and everyone around you. Right. Yeah. At some point, he's being disingenuous and he's hurting well, himself. Well, because it's like others. he's acting like he's the only one at risk here. What is like like what do you think is gonna happen if you get fired and Thomas and O'Brien are given that validation to run rampant? I know you would be excited to see <laughs> well. that. But <laughs> I just you know, it's like he just he's so unable to see the big picture on anything. It's always about him yeah. and like what what he is doing. And what a noble person he is. But it yeah. seems like he's able to rely on Anna to stand up for him. I mean, she goes to London, and instead of, you know, Jersey Shore and partying, she goes to see his mother. Yeah, yeah. that's true. That just made me like Anna a little bit less. <laughs> Look, blame Julian Fellows. Okay, I do. Yeah. I usually do. <laughs> yeah. Mrs. Hughes gives her a little info about how the, the travel to London's going to go, uh, and then she's off to referee... Mrs. Patmore and Mrs. Bird, who are meeting up. It's, uh, it's... <laughs> times two. Yeah. <laughs> Except Mrs. Bird's is more like a dirge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you do yours and I'll do mine. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> this is nice. Okay, cool. Uh, like that scene in uh, Adaptation where Meryl Streep and that flower guy do that thing. <laughs> <laughs> Eloquent as always. <laughs> Just call me Baron Julian Fellows. <laughs> so yes, so that scene is uh that's we we've just summed up the next scene, which is the two of them indeed having it out. Yeah, having it out at each other. Anna and Molesley watch and uh sort of giggle. Well, what I love about this scene is like Mrs. Bird is such a bitch. Yeah. She comes in and is making fun of Mrs. Patmore for going blind. Yeah. She's like, "Oh, I'll clean this kitchen up. Oh, you can't be blamed because your eyesight is failing you and also you're lazy." <laughs> yeah. Like, she just, yeah. In her own kitchen. She just comes in and lays it all out. She's like, why do you have all these other people here? I'll cook a whole meal for ten people by myself. Boom. Well, I, I think, I think when, when, they, <laughs> when they first introduce her with, with her original family, and, you know, Matthew and his mother are, are amused by her going to be the cook. I thought it was because she was, you know, a good cook or a bad cook. But really, they just know that she's such a bitch. They're just like, <laughs> we can't wait. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that's why, you know. It's that's very, why they're there for dinner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that and no one's cooking for yeah. them at home. <laughs> They'd starve. Uh, yeah. Because Matthew doesn't know how to make any food. And Anna and Mosley are, like, giggling about it. And Mosley totally checks out Anna's boobs in her not-at-all-revealing Nate's outfit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very obvious and weird. He checks out her collarbone. Mm-hmm. No, you can't even... Not it's even all the that. way up to her neck. <laughs> he literally looks at the front of her, of her shirt or blouse or the top part of the dress. He can, you know, he, her bustier. <laughs> Daddy, it's a bustier. <laughs> Mom and Matthew are talking back at Crawley House. Mom is 
you know, quite upset that Mary is being indecisive and blames Cousin Violet for it, which Matthew immediately comes down on and says, you're not to speak, he says, not to speak ill of Mary, which is like, come on, Matthew, you're mad at her yourself. Yeah. Um, and he refuses to allow her to talk to Cousin Violet, and he says, that's an order. Um, Can sons order their moms to do stuff at this time? Matthew's a lawyer. Okay. <laughs> well, I kind of think that they can. I think because there was the mom's reaction shot there, and I thought it was just a little like, you know, I mean, she was kind of hurt that he would sort of pull that rank mm-hmm. on her, which, you know, that's. You... He's become the sea monster! <laughs> <laughs> So Lord Grantham is talking with McGee in her dressing room and saying about how O'Brien and Thomas are scheming against Bates yet again. It's like, how many times are you going to have this conversation? And how many packs of Marlboro Lights is it going to take? <laughs> <laughs> and McGee basically is asking, well, she says she doesn't want a silver thief in the house, uh, even if he can't walk. Like, right. she just won't let this go. That woman hates crippled people. <laughs> hates them. Like, I don't know if a cripple, like, accidentally caned her foot when she was a kid or what, but she hates, hates, hates the crippled. And this and then, is before handicapped spots, yeah. too. I mean. <laughs> so, McGee asks, sort of in jest, if she should just sack O'Brien, and Lord Grantham says, yeah, that's fine. I hate her. <laughs> uh, O'Brien has once again conveniently come into the doorway and heard this whole conversation. Well, no. I mean, that's the thing, is she didn't hear that whole conversation. She only heard those last two mm-hmm. sentences, which were, I suppose I should fire O'Brien. I wouldn't complain. And then she gives Mitri the thing she came in to give her and then looks worried. So then, down in the smoking alley, uh, Thomas and O'Brien are talking to <coughs> The smoking alley would be a really good name for a bar, incidentally. Mm. Oh, yeah. People who are, are entrepreneurs. <laughs> and live in Kentucky or somewhere where you can smoke in bars. <laughs> um, but they're, uh, they're out in the smoking alley and discussing the fact that she thinks she's about to get fired. She's understandably pissed off at that, I have to say. He is talking about the war and uh, how he has some sort of plan to survive. Oh, is it a scheme? Because <laughs> guess what? It's not going to work. He's, well, he says... Well, let me put it this way. I don't want to be a footman, but I'm not going to go get killed in the war either. And then he just walks off. And I'm like, "What? so you're going to go be a pirate? What is your plan here? <laughs> Thomas the Pirate. <laughs> Spinoff. <laughs> uh, so Mrs. Patmore has pulled Daisy aside before she leaves for London to tell Daisy to make sure the food doesn't taste good so the family will be glad when Mrs. Patmore gets back. Uh, Daisy immediately says, so I should poison it. <laughs> like Pat- she did in the first episode. Yeah. She's like, poisoning. I can do poisoning. I've had some practice. Um, <laughs> Mrs. Patmore's like, no. no I, nobody said poison. And she's like, so I should poison. Like, she just sticks with it. Like, Yeah, and anyway, look. Mrs. Patmore, you don't like Daisy. You don't trust her to do anything. What are you doing trying to involve her in a scheme? Well, or just just memo to everyone in Downton Abbey. Daisy can't scheme. She's mm-hmm. not. She can barely do her job. <laughs> it, from the looks of it, she can barely stand upright sometimes. Like, she's just not capable of complexity. But, you know, Mrs. Patmore leaves her with that anyway. So, you know, I'm sure that's the last we'll hear of it. <laughs> uh, Carson is talking with uh, Mr. Bromage. 
well, we learn his name shortly, who is the telephone man uh, that they have contacted to install the telephone, or rather, telephones, because mm-hmm. apparently they want uh, one upstairs and one down in Carson's pantry. Yeah, they want the family plan. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> this is Downton Abbey. <laughs> the telephone man is rather shocked by the idea of two telephones, but quickly says that it's... You know, I mean, there can't be that many people out in the country asking for telephones. I mean, apparently not. Yeah. Surprise, surprise, Sir Anthony Strallen stops by to see if Edith's around, and she far too eagerly runs to the front of the house saying, Yes, yes, I'm here! Here I am! I'm here! Hello! (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he invites her to go out for a drive, which she, of course, agrees to, and says she will go get her coat. Sybil comes in and intervenes with the crotchety Mr. Bromage, (laughs) and she finds out that he's actually looking for a secretary. Uh, so she lights up because, as we all know, her pet project is getting mm-hmm. the ginger housemaid a secretary gig. She's taking it upon herself. Mm-hmm. She is taking it upon herself. Uh, so she assures him that she knows just the woman and he'll have her application by that evening when the books close on applicants. Yes. We then get a scene at Moorfields. Uh, Anna is has you know uh, brought Mrs. Patmore there. And this scene is just, again, just... Fantastic. I just cry every time. Yeah. Every time. Uh, because, you know, Mrs. Patmore says she didn't realize there was going to be an actual operation. And and Anna's just very nice. Uh, she's know. just, she's, Anna's got a great bedside manner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's just saying, well, she says, what do you think they were going to do? Just make magic passes over your eyes? You know, but gently. Like, yeah. not in a jerk way. Not in a jerk way. She keeps it light. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Mrs. Patmore is so far out of her element she can't even tell you doesn't know what to do with herself but clearly like she's clearly determined to like do her best to like hold it together and oh because i mean it just kills me because you know the doctor or a doctor's assistant or somebody comes in and says okay you know she'll be out in a week uh and then he leaves he does not have a very good bedside manner no uh, but Anna says, you know, I promise I'll visit you every day. And Mrs. Patwarren just says, what about the rest of the time? And I'm just like, again, getting choked up just mm-hmm. talking about it. Because, like, this is a woman who's probably never sat down. She believes in the fairies. She believes in the fairies and Jesus and Judas. And hard work. And hard and work. Hard work. And she, just, she loves she, doing. She doesn't know how to just be. Yeah. And, you know, in her eyes, she's going blind. It's not like she can, like, read a book or anything. Yeah. But she just, you know, she sits there and she, like, gets out her little handbag and pulls out her hanky and finally... You know, doesn't even break down. She just, you know, yeah. is dabbing her eyes and you know, I wearing her her non cook outfit, yeah. the one that she has. The one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm just like weeping and texting my parents and telling them <laughs> how much I love them and making... And you're not even single. No, I'm not. <laughs> Uh, so then we cut to Anna walking in the park with an umbrella, smiling at a stranger because she is so nice. Uh, then she goes up to some army dude. Uh, she's been walking to this army dude at this army place. Yeah. And she asks about Mr. Bates. And uh, I'm wondering how many John Bateses have there been in the army. Like, I feel like she's going to be there for a while, mm-hmm. finding out this information. We get a quick scene here in the kitchen. Uh, Mrs. Bird asks if Daisy's finished the soup and the sauce for the fish. Uh, she says she has. Then Mrs. Bird walks off, and uh, Daisy looks around nervously, gets something and grates it into the soup, and continues to look around nervously. Because she's got a really good poker face. <laughs> right. Well, at least she always looks terrified. and Yeah, that's know. true. I guess she probably doesn't look that different from how she normally mm-hmm. looks. 
And Mrs. Bird doesn't know or care. Maybe I'm sure. she's the ultimate schemer. <laughs> <laughs> we laugh. At the end of series three, you find out it's all been a long con that Daisy's been pulling. She's actually forty. She's gonna marry Matthew. <laughs> He's actually four. <laughs> I think that's another movie. <laughs> Forty going on fourteen. I'd watch it. Spinoff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> back at Army Place, wherever that is, uh, the guy comes back out with a giant book, presumably listing all the John bases. <laughs> um, this one's what beef bites. <laughs> and says that his situation was odd. But won't say why. Maybe that's where Bates get his re- gets his reticence from. It's yeah. just from being in the army. Yeah. Also, then why even say it was odd if you're not going to fill us in? Uh, sure. I don't just dangle it in front of our face and then not go there. Yeah. But in any case, he gives Anna the address of Bates's mother. So she's got that. Back at Downton Abbey, uh, Mary is lying in wait and ambushes Edith as she's walking down toward dinner and asks if Edith wrote to the Turkish ambassador... And uh, Edith is all like, yeah, why are you asking me? And Mary's like, to give you one last chance to deny it. And I'm like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. What do you, like, you know she did it. She knows she did it. Why are you beating around the bush? Uh, but anyway, Edith calls her a slut. And then Mary throws her over the balcony. Mm. In, in my dreams. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> in everyone's dreams, really. <laughs> yes, so uh, relations are at their most strained between <laughs> Lady Edith and Lady Mary at this point. Yes. In the drawing room, uh, it's apparently after dinner, the women are hanging out there, uh, and the Dowager Countess asks McGee about the advertisement for the maid and has have any responses come back in yet. McGee also uh, mentions to Carson that he should be sure and tell Mrs. Bird that the dinner was delicious. She then talks to Edith and asks how the ride was uh, with Sir Antony. Uh, Overbitey! <laughs> and she says that it was very pleasant, and she's all... Uh, hesitant and shy, and says that he's. He said that he has a question to ask her, uh, and that he will ask it at the garden party. Uh, the question, I believe, is: So, uh, what's the deal with your nose? Was it always like that, or what? <laughs> <laughs> but I may be wrong. Yeah. Then Mary is being very bitchy to Edith uh, because McGee tells Edith that you know she'll need to consider very. You need to think about your answer very carefully. <laughs> Just like I pick out all of my human words. <laughs> and so across the room, Mary's like, I should carefully think about a lot of things. And Edith is clearly spooked, like a gawky young colt. <laughs> and uh, then we, we cut to Matthew discussing the marvel that is the telephone with Lord Grantham. And we see Cousin Violet and Cousin Isabel sniping about Mary. Cousin Isabel, though she has been ordered and forbidden to stay away from Cousin Violet, is sitting next to her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cousin Violet tells her uh, that it is not her fault that Mary has not accepted Matthew. She told him to accept Matthew. Her quarrel is with her daughter, Rosamond. So stick that in your pipe and smoke it. And when Maggie Smith tells you to do that... You'd better... I, I'm smoking three pipes, actually, right mm-hmm. now, just with for... With O'Brien. <laughs> she is, she's right here. <laughs> right here with us. Yes, and, and almost as good as that line is Carson's reaction shot to it. Yes. I believe, I believe he actually won the BAFTA for best reaction shot. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Downstairs. 
upstairs, Mosley walks in on Thomas doing something with Carson's pants. <laughs> yeah. It's very unclear. Like, this scene is vague beyond the point where it's vague to the characters. I'm like, did I just walk into, like, an experimental film <laughs> or that Eddie Izzard bit about arranging matches? <laughs> like, what is going on? I mean, I guess he was stealing Carson's wallet. And then... Which- a, out of nowhere, and B, like, why would you do that? No, look, you're in a microcosm. There's only one known thief in the house, and it's not even Bates. <laughs> yeah. So, like, it's like, what, what do you think? Like, people are going to be like, oh, it was, uh, it, was, it was Matthew. Just came down here and just <laughs> took it. Because he was mad, see? About the baby. <laughs> <laughs> I'll steal their butler's wallet. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's like, what could Carson possibly have in his wallet? Yeah. Like, he can't have that much money. Like, do they have photo IDs? Like, was Thomas <laughs> trying, like, trying to forge a fake for... <sighs> look, anyway, Thomas, you're an idiot. Way to go. Right, again. Yeah, so so you like O'Brien, you're not as big of a fan of Thomas? You know, Thomas, Thomas sullies O'Brien because Th- Thomas seems resentful. He seems mm-hmm. angry. O'Brien... Yeah is always like that. O'Brien's, like, <laughs> again, as I say, O'Brien's never sweet to anyone, not even her employers. And, mm-hmm. you know, what you see is what you get with O'Brien. You yeah, know, she's she, just grim all the time. Mm-hmm. Thomas seems like he's got a little bit of, like, a manic inner, depressive... Yeah, an inner on. turmoil and, well, you know... sometimes he's, like... I mean, he's never, like, especially nice, but sometimes he's more unnice than others, you know? Mm-hmm. He goes out of his way. He strains out of... Yeah, yeah. Anyway, Thomas, you're a jerk, and you're not invited to smoke in the smoking alley with Sam. No, no, I'll take your place with (laughs) O'Brien when you leave for the military. (laughs) Meanwhile, in the men's part of the dinner party upstairs, Lord Grantham and Matthew are uh, discussing how shitty his life is now. Mm -hmm. And how shitty Mary is. Indeed, yes. It's always a topic of discussion. (laughs) What does Mary say? (laughs) You must never listen to anything I say. (laughs) Then uh, Carson invites Mrs. Bird to eat with the servants downstairs, and Daisy flips out. She says, Mrs. Potmore always says, cook, eat separate. That's how she sounds. Thomas tells O'Brien secretly that McGee has advertised for her replacement, and O'Brien calls her... uh, An ungrateful cow? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really... And McGee was just talking about how fond you were of her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. O'Brien loves me. <laughs> I, I would like to say, how did you ever get that impression? Because uh, O'Brien doesn't appear fond. Like, even if she actually was fond of you. This all plays into our McGee is mentally challenged mm-hmm. in some way. Oh, theory. yeah. yeah okay. At least I mean, delusional. Did she have a stroke as a child that went unnoticed somehow? <laughs> like, I just, I don't understand it. Like, she just has this delusional view of the world. The look on her face always reminds me of that Duggar lady. You know, right? From, like how you know, forty-seven kids and counting or whatever. Mm-hmm. But he's got that same sort of glaze. Like, it's kind of ah. serene, but in a medicated sort yeah, of way. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know what Elizabeth McGovern gets up to in her spare time, <laughs> but uh, clearly Julian Fellows has no problem with it. Uh, it's her pregnant glow. But she's had it the whole time, and she's only been pregnant for four months. Yeah. So, that aside, we're down at dinner with the servants, and uh, everybody's eating their soup and making weird faces until Mrs. Bird spits it out and forces Daisy to tell everyone that she put soap in the soup 
and mustard and anise seed in the fish sauce. Yes, because Mrs. Bird had suspected that she might do something like this. Yeah, Daisy's, she, Daisy's ruse didn't work on her. Yeah, that's why she told Daisy that the, the soup for downstairs was actually the soup for us upstairs. Well played, Mrs. Mm-hmm. Bird. Yeah, she's shrewd. And uh, Daisy is weeping and crying in front of everybody. And, like, Mrs. Hughes just sits down and, like, <laughs> it's like she's like, I don't even know what to do with you when you're like this. <laughs> but uh, Mrs. Bird, to her credit, you mm-hmm. know, forgives Daisy and says there's worse crimes in the world than loyalty and asks her to bring in the beef stew that she started for the following day. But she asks, you haven't had a chance to put anything in that, have you? Oh, I was going to put in some syrup of figs <laughs> and at this point everybody's trying really hard not to laugh yeah carson has a ton of moments this episode where he's trying really <laughs> hard to keep it together yeah mrs hughes remains unamused yeah she's very unhappy no this whole little mini arc here i really could have seen as just the plot of like a 1980s bbc sitcom called oopsie daisy <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's and my that, favorite one that's so the best far. That's, that, that's that the one, one we'll do the radio happen. play for because we can bang a lot of pots and pans and stuff. And we have those. Ah. Yeah. All right. Just use what you have. <laughs> Depression. Oh. The economic thing, not the yeah. emotional thing. Yeah. Not McGee. The following day, yeah. presumably. And Sybil checks in with Mr. Bromage, who's there to continue installing the telephones or yeah. something. I don't know what that involves. Uh he is not interested in someone with no experience, which is what Gwen appears on paper. But Sybil insists that he see Gwen in person because, you know, she works there as a housemaid. And it turns out that Mr. Bromage's mother was a housemaid. And I just kept imagining me like, and me father, and me brother, and me dog. <laughs> I did me time as a housemaid years ago. Like, just, I don't know. But yeah. he's, he's, he's fine with her being a housemaid, and he knows that housemaids know a lot about long hours and... Uh, and hard work. And hard work. Mm-hmm. So he, uh, Sybil offers them use of Lord Grantham's library to conduct their interview. Lord Grantham comes along to use his library, <laughs> and Sybil hilariously turns him away from using his own library. It's a real, like, role reversal mm-hmm. there, because he's very, like, petulant. Uh, right, right. He's stamping his foot, but it would be, it would be Sybil with her opinion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, a key thing that we find out in this scene is that the uh, nameless female servant we've seen around has a name. Her name is Lily. Way to Welcome, go, Lily. Lily. Yes. Anna is at the house of old Mrs. Bates, we presume. Uh, Instead of partying in London, yeah. like she right. should be. Well, she's a very noble young lady, and Apparently. she's noble without any effort. Yes. Which is the noblest nobleman of all. <laughs> uh, she's trying to find out from his mother what the hell the deal is with all this bullshit. She doesn't use those words. <laughs> and Bates' mother says that basically the problem was Bates's wife, Vera. Vera said that? <laughs> yes. Who was a right bad one. Uh, according to Bates's mother, but who Bates for a some... nasty piece of work. That's that's what she was. Mm. A right bad one. Well, Baden is somebody's a right Baden at some point in this. Somebody's show. fat okay. and fit too. I mean, in we'll any case. <laughs> Moral of the story: nobody likes Vera, but Bates, of course, felt the need to protect her by confessing to the crime that Vera committed, stealing the regimental silver. Old Mrs. Bates is very upfront about the fact that. Bates is innocent and Vera did it, leading me to believe that Bates gets his idiocy from his father's side of the family. Mm. <laughs> yes. Back at Downton, William, Gwen, and Daisy are staring at the telephone in the Carson cave, 
and Carson comes in and yells at them for idling. But they ask him to show them how it works, but he insists that it is a valuable tool. Not a toy. Not a toy. Shoes them away and then proceeds to play with the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think we all would have done. In the same situation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Your first I, iPad. Or... <laughs> no, I never let any of my friends play with my toys before I get a chance to play with them. <laughs> That's just how I roll. Mm-hmm. Yes, we then get the, the rest of the story from old Mrs. Bates that Vera worked at the barracks. She stole the silver. Everybody knew she stole it. They saw her with a big carry-all leaving the scene of the crime. But Bates, because he was drinking too much... And angry because of the war... And so that made him decide that he had to confess. She says he was a different man back then. It's like, really? Because he still pretty much confesses to things that he didn't do. Like, he doesn't doesn't really seem that different. Yeah. Thus proving that people are incapable of change. (laughs) Yeah. Take that, Laura Linney. (laughs) Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. Uh, we got to Thomas helping Dr. Clarkson to leave the house. Presumably he is there doing an unspeakable vaginal checkup <laughs> on McGee. And Thomas asks Dr. Clarkson how he could help out medically with the war. Because he thinks that that's, you know, the most important thing, bringing people back to health and back to life. And Dr. Clarkson says he will make some inquiries and see if he can set something up for Thomas. So finally, Thomas is putting his scheme into action. Yeah, and it actually seems by his standards to be a pretty decent Yeah, scheme. I mean, he's not accusing anyone of stealing anything, so already And he's, he's... getting out of fighting in the war. Yeah, yeah. so hey, uh, way to go. Yeah. And this leads us to a segment that we like to call Tom Repeats History, where our resident Kaiser commentator, Tom, <laughs> will uh, repeat some history. So take it away, Tom. Okay. I'm just going to give a quick summary of the actual events of this July and how they led up to World War One. You know, we all know that the Archduke was assassinated and then World War One happened. But this, of course, makes no sense. You know, why was Britain fighting Germany because a Serbian person shot an Austrian politician? I'm already drunk with confusion. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and so I, I, I looked into this just to get the details of just what a comedy of errors this whole thing was. I mean, starting out with just the assassination itself, there were uh, six Serbians involved in the plot to assassinate the guy. Uh, they were all lined up on the route of his, that his motorcade was going to take. Two of them just sort of let him drive by and did not attempt to assassinate him for some reason. Uh, the third one threw a bomb at his car, which bounced off his car, rolled under the car behind him, and blew up there, leaving him unharmed. <laughs> the Archduke then sped off at high speed the rest of the way down, passing the other three, who, because he was going so fast themselves also did not do anything. So all six of them failed to assassinate them, to assassinate the Archduke. Uh, at this point, Gavrilo Princip decided that he would just go get a sandwich. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is true. Wow. He decided to go get a sandwich, uh, went to some random cafe, sat down, at which point the motorcade made a wrong turn, pulled up to the street next to where he was having a sandwich, realized that they'd made a wrong turn and stopped in order to back up and go the other way, stalled the car so it was motionless there for a few seconds. Princip looked up from his sandwich, realized that the Archduke was sitting there in a stalled car, like right next to him, and went over and shot him. So that's how the assassination happened. There, was there no one around the guy? Uh, there. Well, 
I mean, we would think that a bomb just having been thrown at you, you would be a little on your guard. They were a little bit, but then the driver took a wrong turn. And so the other car, I mean, first of all, the cars have been loaded up improperly. Some people got in the wrong car. Like, it was just ridiculous all the way around. So not a very good parade. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, one, of, one of history's worst, really. <laughs> um So this happened. At this point, the Germans were allied with the Austrians. Like, basically, the story was that we remember that the uh, Balkan Peace Conference that Kamal Pamuk had been there for had basically not really accomplished anything. Uh, They all sort of agreed to disagree, which didn't make anybody happy. What was basically going on was Serbia wanted to take over all of the Balkan Peninsula, and Austria wanted to maintain control over parts of it, mainly Croatia. So uh, that's why Serbia and Austria were fighting, was basically over who would get to control Croatia. Germany at this point wanted a war. They wanted a war because they felt like a war was going to be coming one way or another, and they felt that right then they were more prepared than France and Russia, the people on either side of them, and that if they waited, France and Russia would catch up to them. So they were just basically looking for any excuse. So they started pushing Austria right away to declare war on Serbia, which would enable things to get rolling because Serbia was allied with Russia. The Austrians were basically in agreement with this. Their only debate was, should we just invade Serbia right now or should we make a bunch of demands they can't possibly agree to so then it won't look like it was our fault? Throughout all this, basically everybody involved thought that everybody else in Europe was idiots. That was pretty much the, the going thing Well, here. they were maybe judging them based on those assassins and <laughs> yeah, the yeah. driver no, of the motorcade. Yes. I mean, to be fair, most of the people in this story <laughs> have not proven themselves to not be idiots. Yeah, indeed. The one person in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, the head of Hungary, Count Tisza, uh, said that, you know this will cause a world war, right? And the rest of them said, blah, 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 and wouldn't listen. Um <laughs> That's directly from the minutes. That's from the minutes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, So they did indeed make a whole bunch of demands of Serbia. Russia pushed Serbia to agree to as much as possible because Russia was in the middle of ramping up their military but hadn't gotten very far with it. England came in and offered to mediate, said, we'll talk to Serbia, you talk to Austria, we can all come to an agreement on this because, again, really no reason this couldn't have been resolved. To which... Everybody in Austria and Germany was, like, so offended at England for offering to mediate. Like, they were, were they, just, like, nine? <laughs> they, they were, pretty much, and just thought it was ridiculous and weak-kneed and all sorts of other things. So Serbia winds up accepting eight of the ten demands that Austria had made. At this point, Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany got back from a cruise. This was on July 28th. He gets back from this cruise that he'd been on. Well, he likes medals, but he hasn't connected them with fighting. <laughs> right. <laughs> um... He sees Serbia's response that agrees to almost all the demands and is like, oh, well, this clearly there's really no need for us to have a war now. All his generals and diplomats were like, yeah, we're going to have a war and basically just ignored what he said, sent messages to Austria that like eliminated all the things Wilhelm had said about we don't need a war now and just were like, yeah, Wilhelm says to go on with the war. We, We talk to him. That's what he wants. So Austria starts. So Austria declares war on Serbia. Russia, being allied with Serbia, starts mobilizing their military. Germany then sends an ultimatum to Russia, saying that if you don't stop mobilizing your military, again not attacking anyone, just getting everybody ready, then we will attack France. 
they would attack France because they had one plan for war. It was called the Schlieffen, the Schlieffen plan. It was their only plan. Sounds like a really bad plan. Yeah. And it was Who bas- made this, Daisy? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And basically, the Schlieffen plan said, if we get in a war with France and Russia, we have to knock out France first because Russia will take longer to get going. But at this point, France is not involved. Right. At all. At all. They're just making a prediction here. Yeah, but they've just decided that because they've got enemies on both sides, they have to attack one first, and they think France is easier. Well, never get involved in a land war in Asia. <laughs> right. So they start mobilizing their army. The, the other thing about the Schlieffen plan is step one, mobilize the army, automatically includes invade Belgium and Luxembourg. What? Like, it's just there, it's like, as soon as we start mobilizing, invade Belgium and Luxembourg. Like, that's just part of the plan. This, this is a great plan. This, you know, and it's like, I've always like heard all these things about Germans like being really good at like being organized and stuff. And I'm part German myself. Yeah. And I'm like, I didn't get those genes. But now that I'm hearing <laughs> how they would be organized about stuff, this is not, this explains a lot about why I did not take a life skills course in college. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so ultimately on, I believe, August 1st, Germany declares war on Russia in an amusing little thing. German ambassador to Russia accidentally gave them both declarations of war, one in which they said we're declaring war on you because you did not respond to our ultimatum, the other of which said we're declaring war on you because your response wasn't sufficient to our ultimatum. It's good to cover all your bases. Right. <laughs> right. right. Just letting him know that there was... Either a way, there's a war. Yeah. <laughs> Guess um, what? Boom. That's what. Yes. <laughs> Bombs in your face. Yes. And uh, the brilliant Schlieffen plan to quickly knock out France did not knock out France and... Uh, 20 million people died. Hmm. So, But the good thing is we can all read All Quiet on the Western Front and wonder <laughs> what it all meant. And uh, whether we're going to pass our European authors course in high school. <laughs> oh, man, I got to study. <laughs> all right. Well, that was Tom with Tom Repeats History. Thank, Thank you, Tom. Tom. I learned welcome. a lot. Yeah. It's always very everything. informative. I, I hope, I hope you know, we have some young listeners out there who might be studying this right now. Yeah, you know, I think and they who, can, uh, whose parents yeah. haven't caught wise to our salty language on this show. <laughs> well, yeah, I think we said vagina a no, few that's times, so interesting. but I'm really six assassinations. I mean, no, you hear that you know one, what? you know. I know that I studied this in my European history class, but I don't remember it being so ridiculous. I'm, sh- <laughs> I'm sure that it was because I had a great teacher in high school and he would have found this all hilarious in his weird Why do of- they leave? This is the car chase that changed history. Why did they leave that out of the books? I'm, yeah. I just want to call up, you know, whatever teacher Well, you know what? I mean, history books are always like they have so much text in them. I think it's hard to, to envision a car crash. Yeah, they didn't have any other names, so it didn't really matter. Yeah, that's mm. true. Anyway, I... Uh, yeah, so uh, if you're looking to avoid starting World War One, there's some very good lessons for you there. Shoot straight the first time. Yeah, and don't throw your bomb under the wrong car. Oh, God. Like, what is Again. it? The 1960s Batman show? Jesus. <laughs> well, thank you, Tom, for that amazing account. The you're Schlieffen welcome. plan? The Schlieffen plan. What a horrible name for a plan. <laughs> I'm going to use that, I think, just in everyday life. You know, when things go horribly wrong, mm-hmm. Schlieffen. <laughs> I'm just, I can use a whole Schlieffen plan. <laughs> ah, Schlieffen plan. That's good. That's a good... Maybe we'll start using that more for our listeners who don't like the salty language. <laughs> ah, bull Schlieffen plan. Stick that up your Schlieffen plan. <laughs> <laughs> up yours, Schlieffen plan. <laughs> So we've all learned a new word. Back to the show. So we have uh, Carson uh, telling Lord Grantham that Mosley told him that 
he caught Thomas stealing his wallet. I believe from his other coat is what he said, so it was not his pants. Oh, yeah. And he points out that Molesley doesn't know Thomas and has no reason to be prejudiced against him. So this Mm -hmm. is finally a good neutral observer saying Thomas is terrible. (sighs) Lord Grantham says, oh, I hate this sort of thing. And I'm like, oh, I see why you and Bates get along so well. (laughs) Uh, But he he hates this sort of thing, and he's very concerned about Lady Grantham's condition. So he doesn't want to fire Thomas until after the garden party. Uh, Okay, fine. What can he do in a matter of days? Everybody's more stressed about this garden party I than know. anything else. Yeah. There's, a, there's, there's a war brewing. Well, I mean, and, there's, like, there's and a we've talked about baby. it. It's not as important as a dinner party. I don't know why they're flipping out. It's in the garden. You don't even have to clean the house. Yeah. I mean, just just thinking about it makes me want to take my hat off. <laughs> <laughs> just roll out a cooler and let people go to town, man. <sighs> this was a redneck party. <laughs> it was a hootenanny. Uh, That's what it, would it was. Be, uh, yeah. Anyway. Moving right along. Yeah. Mrs. Patmore comes back from Moorfields uh, wearing glasses from the merry old land of Oz. <laughs> Mrs. Hughes says that she and Mrs. Bird have been making lists for the infamous garden party. And Mrs. Uh, Patmore is upset. She's not pleased that Mrs. Hughes has started planning the garden party without her. Mrs. Hughes is understandably like, uh, it's this weekend. You yeah. were gone. It needs to happen. So she's then explaining to the two cooks that she has... Uh, She's checked the stores and ordered the things they need. And Mrs. Bird is very upset because she thinks that she should manage her own store cupboard as she has always managed her own store cupboard. Can you imagine (laughs) separating a cook from her store cupboard? And then Mrs. Patmore has her best line of the whole show, (laughs) even better than Jesus and Judas in the garden. (laughs) How long have I been saying this? Oh, Lord. And Mrs. Hughes. Who has been fighting the battle. Yeah, uh, she's no. She becomes the enemy because Mrs. Patmore agrees with Mrs. Bird, and she says that I will be happy for us two to plan the garden party. Mrs. Hughes knows when she's been out foxed, and she's really not happy. Oh no, she's so unhappy. Like she's like fiddling with things on the counter, like looking for (laughs) something to do. Yes, Uh, we do also see a mystery male servant walk by in this scene. Maybe he'll get a name. (laughs) Maybe he's the hall boy. It could be. We've then got a scene of Carson uh, continuing to play with the telephone Mm -hmm. in an adorable fashion. He is the cutest, most cuddliest butler ever. No, but he, he runs afoul of the operator. Uh, because when you pick up the phone, it connects you directly to the operator. Oh, and she criticized. No, well, she, she does. She yeah. his representation of Downton Abbey, which yeah. nobody up until this point has. Yeah. And, you know, Mrs. Operator Lady thing. Just... Yeah, well, she tells me he sounds stupid. Mm-hmm. And he's... Nobody's broken him down. No. That. But, she, but he says, well, I'm sure a lot of the things that you do sound stupid to other people. <laughs> but this also reminds, like, this scene, I'm like, I feel like this is what happened, like, when Julian Fellows got email. Like, he thought you could, like, send practice emails. Right. And so, like, his kids would, like, be like, Dad, what the hell are you sending me these emails for? <laughs> or maybe, like, chat. I feel like maybe he would have been really bad on chat and, like, typing in all caps or something like that. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, I'm saying this is true life for Julian Fellows. Yes. With new technology. The Dowager Countess is talking with McGee in uh, McGee's bedroom. She says that she has written to McGee's mother. McGee is frightened by this. <laughs> uh, but she says, not to worry. Uh, I told her not to come over, uh, to come and admire the new baby. Mm-hmm. McGee is relieved yes. that she can put off I'm, I'm 
excited because this character is going to be in uh, series three. McGee's mother, oh. played by Shirley MacLaine. Mm. Which, you know, that's not that's not a spoiler, so calm down. Uh, <laughs> no, but I'm just... Like, who is this woman that she... Ter- like, she terrifies McGee so much that she married a man for money, moved across <laughs> the Atlantic Ocean to live with this man's also terrifying mother. I, I'm very curious what this lady's deal is. Yeah. She finds Maggie Smith less oppressive than... Yeah, exactly. Mother, or rather, the Dowager uh-huh. Thomas. Maggie well, Smith is fine in her own right. Oh, absolutely. But. I'm sure she's charming. <laughs> uh, they continue to talk about the replacement made, some answers, some replies have come into their advertisement, which O'Brien again overhears and again misinterprets. Then uh, Anna comes into Lord Grantham's library. He's a little startled. He was expecting Carson. But she informs him that Mrs. Patmore is back and uh, fighting fat. Fat and fit, both yeah. at the same time. And he cor- he corrects her. Uh-huh. He says it's, it's fighting fit, and Anna just... Smile sweetly. Yeah, because she does. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But the real reason she's there is to inform him what she's learned about Mr. Bates and the fact that he took the fall for this horrible wife of his. Again, she's standing up for him. Uh He doesn't deserve it. No. Yeah. Talk about Carson, uh, Lady Mary not deserving Carson and Bates not deserving Anna. I think that Lady Mary and Anna should just run off and be fabulous bachelorettes in the city. That's what I <laughs> or think. Or lesbians. I yeah, it well, would be cute. I feel like that's pushing it a little too far well, for them. In this day and age. Yes. I don't know. I have yet to read what the uh, what the statutes on homosexuality were at the time. But uh, based on that first episode, they're not good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think. I mean, G is having a bath, soaping herself up. It seems like she should concentrate really hard. Yeah, she seems, like, really, like, focused on soaping her arm. But she asks O'Brien, how long does it take for a lady's maid to settle in? And O'Brien, I mean, look, she, it's it, it's almost, like, she should at some point have figured out, really, that this is, that she was misunderstanding what was going on. That said, if she's focused on this interpretation that she's about to be replaced... You have to admit that if not only are you being replaced, but that they so don't care what you think about it, that they'll just ask you straight up how long you think your replacement's going to take to get settled in, or just discuss it right in front of you and not even care. Like, you'd be, you'd be pretty Ask upset. you, in fact. Even, yeah. a- even ask you to your face, you know. Yeah. <laughs> how could we train somebody to work your job instead <laughs> of you? <laughs> Can you just give us some bullet points? We, we'd, ask, we'd ask you to help, but of course you'll be in the poorhouse then. So, <laughs> yeah, O'Brien is semi-understandably very upset. McGee, mentally challenged as she is, drops her soap over the side of the bath. Uh, it breaks. No, she tries to put it on the ledge, and the ledge is clearly not made. To it's balance right. soap. Oh, that was a little bit like, of a fly. There's no soap dish. I think there's a table next to her. Which presumably would have a... So- anyway. Well, I think... She's not lucid. In, in, in my <laughs> second viewing, to me, it looked like she was trying... She had her arm stretched out and was trying to switch hands, not trying to set it down. <laughs> like, is she on laudanum? Like, what? <laughs> How can you not bathe yourself? Well, that's, maybe that's, you know, Edwardian medicine. It's like, oh, pregnant. Well, you're going to be on laudanum from here on out. <laughs> <laughs> um... In any case, she drops the soap. It, it and br- you know what happens when you drop the soap in Downton Abbey. <laughs> yes. Well, go on. We'll find out. <laughs> it breaks in half. Uh, oh, oh, the soap. Bra- the, the soap breaks in half, yes. Uh, O'Brien picks up half of it, gives it back, says that the other half is under the bath, and then 
kicks the uh, the remaining half in such a way as to make McGee slip on it. O'Brien is a big fan of kicking things. Yes. And causing other people to fall down. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. She then goes into the next room and starts to get her clothes ready for her to come out of the bath. Then sees herself in the mirror. In profile with the bangs. Mm-hmm. With the bangs, yes. And says... This isn't you, O'Brien. Yeah, yeah. Sarah O'Brien, this Sarah is not O'Brien. who you are. Yeah, which I do not like. She didn't need to say that line out loud. No, right, that was a little woman, explicit for the British. The woman playing her is a very, very good actress, and just the reaction shot of her seeing herself mm-hmm. in the mirror. Oh, and that face. That oh, exactly. Stunning, memorable O'Brien uh-huh. face. Yeah, we would have totally gotten that she had had second thoughts, and then she turns and immediately tries to go back and, and you know, fix this over, whatever, or warn McGee. But it is too late. Yeah, we, we hear a scream and a thump yes. from the other room. God, and just, you know... I, I don't even, like, as mad as I have been at people in my life, causing them to slip and cause damage to their unborn baby, like, that is just yeah mean. I mean, even, it's, even, it's, even, even That's not a proportionate response to what is going on. Even, no, even if what O'Brien you know what? thought was true was like, right. That is not a right. proportionate What's response. What's the end game? Remotely. Right. And, I mean, I think it's really important that it's, something that she does in a moment when she's particularly upset and that she immediately after regrets it. Yeah. And even so, it's pushing it. But, like, if it wasn't for that, like, it would be un... Like, you wouldn't be able to get past it. But almost. here starts O'Brien's character, you know? Uh-huh. I'm, I'm excited for the next season to see how she breaks and somebody somebody's going to find out about this eventually, I'm sure. And, you know... Where's o- what's O'Brien going to do with that? Is she going to become more evil? Is she going to try and redeem herself? Mm-hmm. Straighten her bangs? I mean, there's <laughs> you know, possibilities for character development They'll here. They'll say, straighten up, O'Brien, and she'll say, my bangs. <laughs> yeah, so uh, this is very sad. Yes. This is the very sad part of this episode mm-hmm. because Bates comes into Lord Grantham's room and tells him that the doctor will come back later and Lord Grantham is crying and saying to Bates that the baby was a boy, and I don't like Lord Grantham. He's yeah. not a character that right. I enjoy. But this is the one scene this season where I have not wanted to just kick him in the knee. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, it's it, it's very it's, – it's probably the only time we see him expressing a genuine emotion. Yeah. Well, because he, he even – whenever he says it's a boy, he even chuckles in such a way that is the first time where he kind of is it's – it's not a funny chuckle. It's a everything is so totally fucked yeah. chuckle. Well, yeah. it's and it's like the that... first time he breaks that and is, and is just, you know – Well, and it's just, you know, the terrible irony. And, I mean – at this time, he probably would have preferred that it had been a girl or that one of his other daughters had died. Mm-hmm. He wants a son. He yeah. really does want a son, no matter how he feels about Matthew or his daughters. Having a son was the big thing. Mm-hmm. But then he, uh, weirdly in this emotional moment, informs Bates that because of Anna clearing his name, Bates won't be leaving Downton. And Bates is like, oh... I suppose I'll have to find someone else to punish me. Yes. So Bates is off to find a confessor or something. <laughs> and, you know, Lord Grant is like, I need some good news today. And I'm like, you had that news before this happened. So really, you're cheating. <laughs> I don't think. And he's back to Lord Grant on my enjoy begrudgingly watching on my <laughs> television screen. So downstairs, everyone is, you know, of course, talking about 
the the situation with the baby. They're all very appropriately solemn. Yeah. They are, but you know, we totally miss out on the reaction of everybody else, or at least the immediate reaction mm. in the true That's British fashion. True. Yeah. There's a miscarriage, and the next time we see them, there's a garden party, and nobody's saying a damn That's word true. about it. Yeah. Again, we don't see anyone being told any of this information. Right. Julian Fellow seems to be much more interested in writing people's reactions than their actions. Mm-hmm. That's that's very true because, you know, we don't see the London No, you know, I mean in the, the whole out and party. We don't, we don't hear see... McGee actually telling him that she's pregnant. Right. He's, we come in a half already... second later. Because yeah. well we're used to, you know, Hollywood shows I mean that that kind of idea of television where or, or just any kind of viewing, any kind of entertainment where those moments are the big moments. The trip to London, the reaction yeah. over the miscarriage. And I think in skipping the big things like that, it's all, it's almost like he's just showing us the more little tiny That's details I mean, surrounding these big things. It's definitely, and, you know, it's a show about manners, essentially. Right. Yeah. And it's also kind of Greek in that, you know, all of the violence and fun stuff happens off stage. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, it, maybe it, it just wasn't in the budget either. It seems I, I mean, like it's deliberate. Like, you know, I would think at his age, he would know that this is a tick of his, mm-hmm. I would think. Yeah. Because, I mean, the same thing is true, I think, in Gosford Park, which, like, spoilers, somebody dies. <laughs> right. But we don't see the person get killed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all discovered after the fact. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. uh, Julian Fellow is much more a chronicle of reactors than actors. Yeah. So, uh, Branson is there. They say he should go ahead and eat with them since they don't know when he might be me- needed. He's apparently going to have to go fetch the doctor again later. Thomas walks in and is just a gigantic asshole. Like, just... This is where... Because I... He like, loses me here. No, know. exactly. Because I have had... A, I'm like, okay, you're gay. You're clearly not happy with where your life is. You're ambitious, but nobody's letting you excel. And you're acting out in all these horrible ways, you know. But this is just beyond... Go ahead and... T- it's, it's just so horrible. Well, so he's disrespectful about the baby. Well, um, and he's mad at everybody for caring. Because the family aren't related to them. But it's just, you know, nobody's happy when a woman loses a baby. Right. William asks him if there's anything that he does respect. And Thomas makes fun of William, says that if he gets this worked up over uh, a baby dying of a woman who barely knows his name, it's no wonder he... Went to pieces. He went to pieces when his old mom snuffed it. At which point, William punches him in the face... And the world rises up and applauds. Yeah. It's it's one of the most satisfactory face punchings in television history. Mm -hmm. No, and I mean... And and everybody in Downton is so happy to see it go down. No, and because Carson and Mrs. Hughes are kind of like, oh, stop it. (laughs) And they they let it keep going until it looks like Thomas is going to get a a, a hit in. And then Branson grabs William and Carson grabs Thomas. Mm -hmm. And Thomas just, you know, stalks off, presumably to go smoke in the smoking Mm -hmm. alley. (laughs) It should be noted that O'Brien does not go and join him because in the beginning of this scene, I mean, O'Brien looks catatonic. Yeah. Did you make a... Did somebody make a comment about it? Yeah, but because yeah. William, being the, the gentle, nice person that he is, mm-hmm. says, uh, oh, and what about you, Miss O'Brien? It must have been a shock and to she find her. doesn't have something nasty and snarky no, to say. No, for <laughs> the first time ever. Well, but I mean, even if she hadn't caused it, I genuinely don't think she would. 
because I agree. she does think no matter how upset well, she is, she she feels like even if there's not a personal relationship, she does feel a certain loyalty. Well, she's she loves just her human. Like she, right. we never see her making fun of William for being sad that his mother yeah, died. That's true. You know, like she's she's got some level of decency, and she does you know love the ungrateful cow. As yeah, well. she does love her. <laughs> yeah, I, I do um, believe that. I mean, she wouldn't have been so hurt by the whole thing if she hadn't. It's true. Yeah. I mean, that, she... that was her reaction in the moment. She was offended, well, and mean, she was just musing. Because, and I mean, the she thing immediately is, went back seconds later. I mean, that you know, she cared so much about working there that for some reason she was willing to injure this person, mm-hmm. which is not a healthy expression of love. No. <laughs> right. Let me make that clear no. to no. anyone <laughs> who's listening. Don't do what Donnie don't does, okay? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, it's it's. I think the, the reaction of the servants is actually really well executed, and it's one of the most satisfying scenes. Also for the fact that after William and... and Thomas has been pulled apart. Branson just says under his breath, he had that coming. And Carson, once again, struggling not to, like, laugh and agree. And, uh, yeah, it's great. We can always count on him to suppress an emotion. <laughs> <laughs> and so now, at long last, the garden party of reckoning has arrived. Hurrah! Oh, my God. Put your hats back on. <laughs> oh, and they will. Mm. Yes. Hats as far as the eye can see. Thomas is there footmaning. Everybody's wearing white. These pasty assholes. Virgins? No. <laughs> Not even. Oh, come on, please. What we, 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 we just learned today about, you know, social mores. Mm. Uh, Sybil's the only one who can really wear white. And, and she even, wears pants and has opinions. <laughs> <laughs> and that bump on her head. <laughs> but Thomas does run into Dr. Clarkson, who has gotten him set up to join the medical corps uh, and tells him, here's your papers. Report at such and such, and Colonel so and so will will take care of you. Yeah, and he says that he'll uh, he'll be able to like watch out for him maybe because he's going to be drafted back into the army as a captain. Yes. Oh, Captain Mike Clarkson. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so Thomas's scheme does indeed appear to have paid off exactly. Wow! For the first time. For the first time. Yes. Daisy uh, comes up to William and is apologizing for all of the mean things that she had said to him many episodes ago. Because Daisy's yeah. such a bitch. Well, I'm like, you know, <laughs> well, I'm like, everybody she, else moved away from this, right? Like, I thought, but... Well, I think what what it is is that she's finally completely over time. Well, she does say That's she's, right, she's not yeah. under an evil spell anymore. Right. And they're so cute and, like, 14 about it. Yeah. Although, since we've been wrong about everybody's age on this show, they're probably, like, 37. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. they're acting 14, yeah. whatever their actual ages are. And then at the end of the conversation, just like every conversation with Daisy, somebody runs by and yells at her to keep doing what she's doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And balance has been restored amongst the Moving servants. right along. Yeah. <laughs> Mrs. Bird and Mrs. Pat getting along like gangbusters mm-hmm. in the kitchen. They are unstoppable and amazing. But the telephone rings and they refuse to get it. Mrs. Patmore will not touch that thing with a 10-foot pole. And finally Branson's like, as an Irish radical, I'm fully capable of answering a phone. And he does. And he does. And he is. <laughs> that was really well good. Played. Thank that you. was really yeah. good. I know who we're being for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it's O'Brien. <laughs> uh, I think this needs to happen now. <laughs> he then runs outside to tell uh, Sybil what he has learned. And they run over to tell Gwen, because guess what? She's got the job! She's a secretary! Hooray! 
And they all and actually I I should have given this more note. Like Sybil is standing around talking with her upper class associates. And I think Edith as and well. I think Edith is there, Who yes. Cares? <laughs> when, and when, then there's Edith. When the chauffeur runs up to her and is like, Come with me and she's like, Okay and leaves the you know And she's not worried about no, how and that like looks. the yeah. looks on their faces are like what a bitch. <laughs> yeah. But they're all very excited. And they're jumping up and down. They're acting 17, Mm. which is maybe appropriate. (laughs) Yes. Gwen runs off. Branson starts to make a comment. He says something like, I don't suppose. And I'm like, where could you possibly be going with that? Right. Supposing is not in your job description. And Mrs. Hughes says, oh, Lady uh, Sybil, her ladyship was asking after you, which is clearly not true. Because it's been like three seconds since she bolted (laughs) away from her fancy friend. I wonder where Sybil is. (laughs) But Sybil gets the message, which is that stop talking to the servant. You're about to bang him. And she does so. And Mrs. Hughes says to Branson that he should be careful because, or he'll end up with a broken heart and no job. And he's all like smiling, like, I'm sure I don't know what you mean. Yeah. Uh, and, And Hughes classily says nothing uh-huh. she doesn't say you know what i'm talking about uh-huh. she doesn't even bother with a response she's been in the throes of passion before right yeah with that farmer mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah she's like you know i know you know i know you want to till that let's soil. all just hide our feelings <laughs> and move along yeah i just want to point out that i wrote that branson is totally crunching on sybil <laughs> which is a reference to the movie never been kissed starring drew barrymore Thank you for that. You are so welcome. Thank you ever so much. For, I mean, why not bring Drew Barrymore into this? <laughs> she would be great as a guest. More star. grateful than Laura Linney. That's she could be bitch. like McGee's cousin, who's also mentally challenged. <laughs> That's true. We should write to BBC and PBS <laughs> and just say, you know, we think that you should change your celebrity introduction. So this is England. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you must be Sybil. <laughs> Like my sibilant S's. <laughs> All right. Anyway, that's enough Drew Barrymore for right now. But I would prefer her to Laura Linney. PBS. <laughs> just FYI. We see Mary is walking with Sir Anthony Strallen. And she utterly ruins Edith's chance at happiness. Yes. Because he is asking after her. And Mary informs him that Edith told her she was trying to dodge an old bore who was going to propose to her that day. And Sir Anthony makes the sad souffle face. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the key to it is that she says, you should have seen her acting it out. It was ever so funny. Like, and that to me is, is the key to that whole little story. Like, uh-huh. you know, not just describing him as some old bore, but that she'd actually gone to the extent of doing an impression of him, mocking him to her, her sisters and all that. Like, that's... That'll it's, do it. it's really cold. And, and I mean, and, I don't know. Like, I mean, is that... Is that on par? I mean, I guess so. Because as we discussed, Mary's pretty much screwed. Yeah. Like, as much... And I want to see Edith and Sir Anthony get together, but Edith kind of deserved that. Yeah. Like, for what she did, like, whoa. Yeah. Well, and... But I mean, at the same time, again, Mary, what is your endgame here? Because all this means is that you're both stuck living in this house forever, like freaking gray gardens (laughs) for the rest of your lives. Like... At least if one of you left, then things would change. And can I just ask kind of a silly question? Because I'm not as well-versed in this in, in sure. entitlement, entailment. If an, a younger daughter marries a man, it doesn't matter. It has to be Mary, well, correct? Well, it's not that it has to be Mary. It's that it has to be Matthew. Yeah. Oh, and because Matthew oh. was the heir. 
Okay. So Edith already skin. gave that a shot, and it didn't work out. Yeah, so. Matthew not interested in Edith. Mm-hmm. Well, or churches. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and by the way, Mary is apparently not that bad of a liar after all. That was the thing because that's we didn't mention it, but when she tells Matthew Granny's plan of throwing over, he's like, "We'd have to be a pretty good liar to pull it off." I'm like, "Yeah, now." That she's told you about it. Like, like yes, I'm still lying to you after like, I've told you the it's plan. It's the easiest thing in the world to be like, oh, yeah, I'll totally marry you. That yeah. sounds great. Well, and apparently, like, based on Sir Anthony Stralin in this very scene, these people are all fairly gullible. <gasps> yes. Mm-hmm. These people, see, they were stupid. Hence yeah. World War I. <laughs> Uh, so Carson is standing with Mrs. Hughes, congratulating her on a successful garden party, saying, you've done it again, Mrs. Hughes, which I'm sure is like the highlight of her year. <laughs> Since uh, I love Carson, but he frequently doesn't give Mrs. Hughes credit where credit is due, mm-hmm, I true. don't think. But she says it's all in the planning. She's very modest and awesome. <laughs> and then Thomas waltzes up and informs Carson that he's putting in his notice uh, for the end of the month so he can go train with the Army Medical Corps. And then he waltzes back away. And Carson says, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Internally, but he yeah. does repress yeah. that emotion. And then Mrs. Hughes leans over and says, and you couldn't have planned that any better either. Then they high five. They do. And it's a freeze frame. <laughs> <laughs> if only that were the ending of season one. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not. Sir Anthony is leaving, and Edith is very upset that he's leaving. And she wants, you know, she's she's... Not in a position to be asking why he's leaving and why he hasn't proposed as he said he would. Which, maybe you don't want to, like, announce that you're going to propose to someone, like, if something of this nature is going to change your mind about it. Like, what is up with these people always being like, oh, I have a pits... This is every British movie that involves a marriage plot, so to speak. They're always like, oh, I'm going to call tomorrow and I have a particular question I'd like to ask you. Like, shut up. Just ask me now, jerk. Like, what is wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> they could have avoided this situation entirely if he hadn't teased her with it. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, but he goes off and Edith sees Mary looking at her all gloating-like and realizes that she got totally punked by Mary. And uh, then she is very sad and tries very hard not to cry. Which, uh, I kind of, I don't know. I feel It's hard for me to feel bad for her. They don't ha- make her likable. They don't make her likable, but I actually, you know, this second time through, I feel much worse for her in this scenario than I did the first time that I watched this season. Yeah. Well, I mean, because let's face it, she's not likely to get that many more offers either. No. I mean, she clearly wasn't living it up during the season. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, just nobody expected her to get an offer. I mean, she you can see She trolls around it. churches. I mean, <laughs> That's on. no way to pick up a dude. <laughs> yeah. And you can see it in McGee's face when she tells her that Sir Anthony, because McGee is still like living in this fantasy world, I think, where she's like, oh, he's just like killing time until Mary stops being a bitch, which like, hello, it's never. All right. Um, but like, she's so surprised. She's like, oh, I never in a million years thought anybody was going to ask you to marry him. (laughs) Wow, this is so weird. Uh, But yeah, but so she's very sad. As well, she should be. Yeah. It's sad souffle face all over this garden party. Yeah. Well, we've got a scene with uh, O'Brien tending to McGee, who is sitting and being, you know... Convalescent. Convalescing. On a chaise lounge. Yes. (laughs) Uh, But O'Brien is is being very attentive and, you know, uh, doing her best to... Uh, make up for the miscarriage that yeah. she just brought about. Oh, right. Which, I mean, obviously she can't, but she's doing whatever she can. And McGee tells O'Brien, oh, she's so sweet. Mm-hmm. 
is like her in silk and feathers. Yeah, Mickey <laughs> is all like because O'Brien's encouraging her to go inside, mm. and Mickey's like, "No, nobody must think I'm really ill." And I'm like, "Real? Like you're not ill? You had a miscarriage? Can you not? Say, you probably can't." Well, she she doesn't want to put a dampener on the garden. The party. garden party. And I'm like, "Screw it's, World War One." There's your, a garden party at Downton Abbey. <laughs> it's your party. You can dampen it if you want to. You can have a miscarriage if you want to. <laughs> O'Brien then is stopped by the Dowager Countess, and basically the Dowager Countess wants to know if she can get the replies to the Lady Maid advertisement uh, out of McGee's room and have them sent to the Dowager Cottage, basically filling O'Brien in on how horribly she had misunderstood. And O'Brien mm-hmm. has her womp womp moment. Yeah. Oh, it's just the face of, I thought I couldn't feel any worse, mm-hmm. but surprise, <laughs> I do. Yeah. And we get Bates douching around with Anna. Oh my God. <laughs> I hate you, Bates. Just shut up. Stop being you. You're driving me insane. And I just don't understand why he won't be with her. Well, he's married and unavailable somehow, and like yeah, well, and and he's like, oh, but you still don't know the whole. St- you know, you know my mother's truth, but you still don't people know. People who truth. say I, I've learned in in television and movies, people who say you don't know the whole story, it's usually not that bad, <laughs> yeah. and it's usually not even an entertaining story. Yeah, they're usually just being dramatic. No, he's just trying to make <laughs> himself seem. You know, he's like he's pulling like some the rules scam on her. Right. You know, yeah, it's like listen, when you're a cripple. The, the dating rules are different. You gotta make yourself seem aloof and unavailable, or else you think you're desperate. Yeah, but he just keeps being evasive. And Anna's like, "Oh, where's your wife?" And he's like, "Oh, she's living in the attic." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, it's like, wrong story. Spinoff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Vera in the attic by VC Andrews. <laughs> no, he says, "Of course, I can't say because he can never say." Maybe someone cast a spell on him, and he can't speak. <laughs> Could be. Anna walks away to work, because the first thing she said to Bates in this scene was that she didn't realize that a garden party was a spectator sport, which, zing on you, Bates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, Molesley slinks up, and Bates is like, oh, I didn't know you were here. And we were like, yeah, nobody did. Like, nobody ever knows if Molesley's there. He is such like, a non-entity. I didn't even know his name until this episode, yeah. to be completely See? honest. No. Uh, but so he asks Bates if Anna's single, or if there's, if there's anyone special in her life. And then Bates launches into this stupid, idiotic, third-person Bob Dole Thank you. Launches monologue. is the right word. And he's like, oh, yes. There's there's someone and and she likes him but he's gruff and hard to reach and blah 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 and Mosley's like okay so does he like her because if not I'm gonna still try and tap that because I checked out her boobage before <laughs> and Bates is like oh I'd say he's keen on her the good news is he's a real douchebag so you might have a chance <laughs> <laughs> no he doesn't he, he doesn't say that he says but, he's keen yeah but I mean when he says that Mosley makes the face that we're all making and then he wanders off to go and try and find Lily <laughs> it's like well you fail with one housemaid you try you know swing for the fences Mosley we're, right. we're we're pulling for you you no name bastard and uh, then we get a scene of Mrs. Patmore yelling at Daisy and things really are back to normal yeah, yeah just yeah. letting everybody know feels good yeah, I mean, you know, Matthew's being all uh, all sulky or whatever, like he was when he first got there. Mary's back to being a bitch. Daisy's wetting herself. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we've really we've really achieved stasis, more or less. <laughs> 
But it's still not over. There's still more of this episode. <laughs> Matthew informs Mary that he's leaving Downton because he is not a puppet. And I'm like, well, you were working on those cottages. For and like, you're a lawyer. And you're a lawyer. Lawyers are puppets. Come on. From what true. I understand. But uh, Mary doesn't want him to leave, but there's literally no reason for him to stay. Like, you know, she's dissed him. He is in no hurry to stick around and be, you know, taunted with his failure to not be a baby that died, essentially. <laughs> like, but, you know, and he, he like he's all like, oh, I want you to, like, wish me luck. I wish all the best for you, which is a much nicer thing than I would say. I would have kicked her right in her vagina of death, <laughs> which I, probably my leg would have gotten exactly. stuck. Exactly. And that's why he didn't. <laughs> No, and it's just weird because he's like talking about like, oh, the experiment is at an end. And like, you know, you have to come back and live here eventually, right? right? You're still right. Like, you're heir. still the heir. Like, just because Mary is treating you badly doesn't mean that you don't still have to you know, be the Earl of You know, maybe he's just trying to convince himself that, that what he has with Mary is not out of obligation, is out of love. And he's just like, they're pushing it away just so that when it does yeah, happen, well, they I can mean, feel like again, they've really gotten there. As Tom pointed out earlier, this is totally antithetical to every relationship that this show has shown so far. Yeah. Well, and, and also, I mean, when Matthew proposed to her originally, he was the heir to Downton, and he knew that she knew that, and that that couldn't help but be some kind of factor in a decision. Well, and and she, now he's the heir again. What is, nothing has actually and changed. And she's been raised to marry the heir of something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, she was supposed... Look, yeah. she's always been supposed to marry the heir of Downton. Yeah. And whatever her feelings on the subject, you get the idea that she probably would have gone through with it if she had to. Like, you thought before that she would marry you as the heir of Downton and that you'd both be happy together. Yeah, and you, you were found okay out that when you didn't know her at all. And now you actually kind of like her. Right. And now you're and not okay with that. All you found <laughs> out is that if you weren't the heir, she might not like you as much. But now that's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, eh, go for it. Anyway, it's an annoying scene. <laughs> the Dowager Countess... Meantime, yells at Rosamond. Who's here for the garden party. Apparently, yeah. Has she been here the whole time? I I genuinely do not know. I mean, it would make sense for her to come back with Mary, but that's not made clear. Yeah. This seems like a long way to come just for a stupid garden party. I don't know, this garden party, I mean. Ain't no party like a garden party. (laughs) Because a garden party's got canapes. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, she, the Dowager Countess is mad at Ros- Rosman for ruining Mary's life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, rightly so. And now she has to go to Italy. Yeah. They don't say that, but we remember. <laughs> yes. Uh, and Rosman's like, oh, I, I have to say what I think. And uh, the Dowager Countess says, why? No one else does. Genius. Yeah. Yes. And if this was a stage play, like, everybody would be, like, on a Sunday in the park with George Tableau, and the lights would slowly, like, fade to black. Yes. And then it would like be like some pictures of World War One or something, <laughs> but that's again not mm. what happens. There is still yet more yes. of this episode. I'd also like to say that possibly Rosman is just playing a deeper game than we realize, and is just angling for Mary to take care of her in her old age. That's possible, or Much maybe she's after Matthew. Oh, now we're talking. I don't know how. I mean, we're, we're all cousins here. Yeah, they are. <laughs> well, and I think she's related to Matthew almost as distantly as Mary. Because he is Lord Grantham's fourth cousin, I believe. So it's that, all very complicated. Well, that means that Mary's his fourth cousin once removed. And, like, what's a removal between cousins? Right. Yeah. Don't read too much into that, cousins. <laughs> 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 yes. My kidney is staying exactly where it is. <laughs> 
Then we have Carson consoling Mary, and it's actually a very sad scene because I love Carson. Yeah. And he uh, loves Mary. He does love, he genuinely does. He's the best dad that money and an unfair class system can right. buy, really. <laughs> and, you know, Mary is melodramatic, but it's, she's also kind of sympathetic when, you know, Carson is saying, oh, you know, surely it can't be all that bad. And she's saying, oh, you know me. I'm never down for long. And crying the saddest whale that ever wailed, this yeah. side of whales. <laughs> So then we get the Dowager Countess talking with mom about how stupid Matthew and Mary are. And yeah. And basically they... They have the same discussion that we just had. So we're not going to belabor this scene. Uh, But hey, it's great to see those two crazy kids finally getting along. And it's it's always comforting to be on the same side as Maggie's. Yes. Right. So Lord Grantham and McGee are uh, together. They're being very cute and he's being very solicitous of her and, and all that sort of thing. Um, Carson. Maybe he should have been more solicitous of her vagina and she would have had a son earlier. <laughs> That's quite possible. Well played. Thank but you. Unfortunately, he doesn't know how all that works. <laughs> um, Nor does he want to know. <laughs> right. Carson brings over a telegram. The subtitles tell us that string quartet music is playing. Mm-hmm. I um, heard the music. Is that a callback to the Titanic? <gasps> <gasps> yes. Um, and mentions to Lord Grantham that Thomas is handed in his notice, so that's all taken care of. Oops! Sorry to spoil your garden party, but World War One just broke out in this bitch. Bam! 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 Then we get everyone. Everyone gets a reaction shot, except for Lily. Everyone. <laughs> OMG. Blank stares all around. The many faces of Downton. Really, they're all the same! <laughs> that's the end of series one. That's yeah. what happens. World War One, Boom. Boom. All right. So series one in the books. Uh-huh. It's done. Signed, sealed, delivered. And yet there's so much more. There is. There is there's eight episodes in series two plus the Christmas special. Uh, and then whatever they've cooked up for uh, series three. That's and right. it all starts with a war. It all mm-hmm. starts with, as we've learned, six failed assassinations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But that's uh, that's for the next episode. Right yeah. now, we've got some unfinished business. We need to award the Abbey Awards for the final episode of this series. Ooh, that's right. So, first of all, the Gibson girl. I was not super enthused about anybody's clothes. They spent a lot of it wearing white. True. And it and, was the garden party, though. Well, I thought for sure this would be the episode. No, man. Somebody, no. No. They can't pull the it off. Party. And also, I mean, you know, we've talked a little bit, you know, they do repeat the outfits. And they, they right. most of the outfits in this episode were repeats. Yeah. That's true. The, so but I, you know what? The only one that stood out. Well, go on. I want, I want no, to. No. Well, you me. go ahead. To me, the only one that stood out was, was the cook, was Mrs. P. Because she actually had clothes on. And even though it was a, a rich shade of shit brown, it was still, you know, it was still really, you noticed that she was wearing clothing. And, you yeah. know, it was, you know. That's a good point. And you know what? I was, gonna, I was going to give it to Aunt Rosamond because she was wearing a feathered hat. And that was the only thing I remembered. But that's a way better point. So yeah. uh, guess what, Gibson girl? We're going to give it to Mrs. Patmore. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, she way to go. She deserves it. She's been no, through so much she already. She has been through so much. That's right. And uh, so now we're up to best evasion. That's this right. is this is someone evading a uh, question or a situation. Well, funnily enough, we're going to give this to uh, Mrs. Patmore for evading blindness. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I realize it was paid for by Lord Grantham, so it's kind of a joint thing. But she actually True. had to have the surgery. That and wear the glasses. And wear the glasses under the knife in in those times. Uh huh. Yeah. Not not the time you want to be under the knife. I don't know if the drugs the were as good. Well, laudanum, pretty much. Or maybe they were better. Well, look. You know what? 
I, I will gladly take present-day surgery over the surgery of 1914. Agreed. No questions Sam asked. Sam seems like he's still on the fence, but... If uh, somebody could please send any laudanum that they might have lying around <laughs> to this ad... No. <laughs> All right. And now to uh, best overbite. Mrs. Patmore does not really have an overbite. No. Or, I, or I'd make it a perfect trifecta. Yeah. We're actually going to give it to Mr. Bromwich, the yeah. telephone installation dude. Well mm-hmm. done, Mr. Bromwich. And... Scion of a long line of housemaids. Yes. Your lower class station in life has not prevented your family from cultivating a hell of an overbite. That's right. (laughs) So well done. Yes. Uh, And now to the the big announcement, the most important announcement, the one that everyone tunes in for. That's right. On the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smiths, what are we going to rate Maggie Smith on this episode? Well, I'd I'd like to hear what you both think. Listen, she says, stick it in your pipe and smoke it. Right. Which I almost... I'm not over that. And hey, I respect that. And I almost gave her the five, but I still feel like this was a four. She was kinder. She was kinder than usual, and I'm not that... Well, and she didn't sufficiently impose her will on everyone. That's true. I Mm -hmm. mean, she was right about everything. She's almost always right. But people actually, there was no contest. People, you know... Well, and she was very vulnerable about losing her maid, and I didn't really like that so much. Yeah, that's true. I was like, you eat maids for breakfast. And (laughs) and you know what? I will say, I think four might be the best rating, because there was a moment where she said something about herself, and and I'm as meek as a lamb. As a servant came by, Uh I thought for sure it would have been the perfect moment for her to, you know, throw her glass in his face, or (laughs) just, just like, you know, do some horrible thing to this serviceman who's right there, which would have been the perfect moment, and we we missed out on that. Yeah. So I think, I think the four is fair. Yeah. It, you know, it's a, sh- it's a shame to end series one with more of a whimper than a bang. <laughs> but I can, can we say that at least the one-liner is her best one-liner? Oh. may not have been her best episode, but, but that I one-liner... I, know, I like what is a weekend. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that comes from a more honest place. Yeah. But I hear that from people over 60 all the time. <laughs> fair enough. Yes. Well, maybe we'll have an episode at some point where we uh, do a roundup. On, yeah, on these and, and a hoot nanny. A hoot nanny. Yeah, we'll have our own garden party. <laughs> uh, so that that is the end of series one. And since we do have our guest here, who has not in fact seen series two, as Kelly and I have, we would we're wondering what are your predictions? Where do you think this is all going? My predictions for this, other than any that I may have made in the course of this podcast, is that Mary. Things are going to fall. Things are going to crumble around her. And I don't want that to happen. But Mm -hmm. I think it'd make for a great season. And I think at the end of it, she's going to have the shittiest year ever. And then her and Matthew are going to get together. That's my prediction. All right. And um, Edith, who cares? (laughs) (laughs) Really? Sybil? I mean, again, you know, she's got opinions. She's also got a bump. So, (laughs) you know, at at least for, for the gals. As far as downstairs goes, O'Brien, I'm just, <laughs> I'm looking forward to her character development. I think she's going to go deep and go hard. Bangs, bangs deep. <laughs> but, um, you know, as far, as far as everybody, and I think everybody else in Downton will probably just bite their lip and not say a word about it. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Yeah. All right. Well, we will, uh, we will have to wait and see uh, for series two. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again to Sam Roth for joining Absolutely. us. And uh, thanks, sure. you. you guys are too much fun. Hey, you are too you much fun. You let me fun. talk about Downton Abbey. <laughs> <laughs> that is the primary function that we serve. Uh, be sure and check out Sam's blog. It is www.riggedup.com. 
www.blogspot.com. It is very amusing, and I believe you will enjoy it. We have fun. They do have fun. <laughs> I have fun when I'm there. And that is the end of this episode. We do want to make a small, brief announcement. We are taking a one-week break. <gasps> yes, yeah. it is true. So we can clean our house. That's right. <laughs> We're taking a one-week break uh, next week, and we'll be back with a new episode of Up Yours Downstairs on March 11th. So it'll be... Series 2, Episode 1, March 11th. Mark your calendars. That's right. We'll be rested up and raring to go. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening and reliving Series 1 of Downton Abbey with us. And until next time, up, up yours, yours downstairs. downstairs.